0: Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to GSL Uncut. Thank you so much for being here. On this episode of the podcast, Melissa and I had the privilege of speaking with Sarah Weaver. Sarah is the oldest daughter of the Weaver family that was involved in the Ruby Ridge siege that occurred right here in North Idaho back in August of 1992. The incredibly tragic series of events that happened up at Ruby Ridge led to the unfortunate and untimely death of her 14-year-old brother Samuel, her mother Vicky, as well as a U.S. marshal who was on scene. We really enjoyed the time that we got to spend with Sarah. She was generous enough to bring a copy of her paperback book with her entitled Ruby Ridge to Freedom, the Sarah Weaver story. You can find that at Sarah's website. This is the book. You can find it at rubyridgetofreedom.com. Melissa and I found it on Amazon where it is also made available. Sarah's story is incredible and we are so happy that we get to share it with you. It's a story of hope, faith, and forgiveness. If you enjoy listening to conversations like these, won't you consider subscribing, sharing, and also hitting the like button without any further ado. Here is our conversation with Sarah Weaver.
1: There's there's a different side to this that people need to know, and I'm okay. Yeah. You know, and the, the healing that comes with that for a lot of people, because the country went through it with us, mm-hmm. yeah. the healing that comes with that is is huge. Yeah. A lot of the time for people, so...
2: Well, we really appreciate your willingness to come on here and share and tell your side of the story because I think it's it's a story that so many people are familiar with, but they don't know they don't know the real story. So you're, we're just yeah. so grateful that you're willing to come on here. So we would love to start kind of at the beginning. You guys were just a family. How did you end up in Idaho?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you guys first of all for having having us here. Your home is absolutely beautiful. You're, Aww, thank, thank you. It's so neat to meet your kids and they're amazing. Oh, thanks and so much. You've just built something so beautiful. And um, just discovering you online now, I'm, I'm going to be a huge fan. Oh, thank you. Time, that's so. so kind. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how did we end up in North Idaho? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, my parents vacationed in the mountains when they were young. And both of them had a, a huge love for the mountains in the West. And they both, I think, had a pull towards moving towards the mountains. Um, but as things sort of progressed and I was born and then my brother and then my little sister and um, they had started uh, visiting a church, which is which is huge to my story. And that'll come in a little bit later. Um, but then they had a falling out with that church. And that sort of led them on a deeper journey into what they believed in their faith and sort of what you know what what did they think they wanted for themselves and their family ultimately and i look back now and i i see you know a lot of things going on in the world now and a lot of the conversations people are having and the, the, the things that are going on and I almost feel they were 30 years or 40 years ahead of their time um a lot of the things that they believed then are actually relevant today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of wild for me to look back on that and, and remember the things that they sort of were starting to believe. And so when they had the falling out with the church, um, they had met uh, some other people with you know certain belief systems, and it. it led them into uh, what's called Christian survivalism. And it sort of went hand in hand with them deciding to move along with the fact that they really wanted to homeschool us and they knew Idaho would allow them to do that legally and they would have the freedom to do that. So I think it was just a combination of several things, you know, their desire to live in the mountains, enjoying visiting when they were younger, going on trips with their family and then the falling out with the church. And I think in a in a community, you know, when you have something like that happen, it can spur you to change your life and decide Mm -hmm. to move and do something different because there's a lot of pain involved with that and you lose. I mean, if, if you're involved in a church, it can be like a family. And Mm -hmm. if you lose half of that family, you know, it can be, it can be tough to kind of just pick up and keep carrying on in the same, Mm -hmm. in the same place. But I do know homeschooling us was a huge motivation as well.
2: Yeah. And were you homeschooled all the way through?
1: I was homeschooled through eighth grade. And then I entered high school as a junior um, when I was 16 after everything happened. And I was a three point or 4.0 student. And, you know, it was a testament to my mom, Mm -hmm. I think, in a lot of ways. Um, And I, when I got, you know, put into public school, I was determined to do the best I could possibly do because again, I was in that trying to prove the world wrong that we weren't, you know, crazy. And, you know, my mom, you know, was an amazing person and she did a good job, Mm -hmm. you know, homeschooling. So I kind of took that burden on to try and and prove to the world that, you know, she was an amazing teacher. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: So what was life like for you when you first came here to North Idaho as a child? What do you recall?
1: Fond memories? Oh, Yes. Yes, yeah, so we were just talking about that before with, with you before the podcast. And um, just the age that I was when we moved to North Idaho, we left Iowa when I was seven. My brother was five and my little sister was, she was two. Um, but at that age, it was all adventure. It was, you know, dad telling us, we're going to have a pot of chili on the stove all the time and you're going to have a horse to ride and we're going to have chickens and, it was this grand adventure and I was all about it. I was very excited and, um, there were challenges that came with it for sure. But as a kid, that burden isn't on your shoulders, right? Your parents are carrying that burden and they carried it. And so I, I just, it was a, it was a blast. My brother and I, we just, we had a blast. It was just great grand exploration.
2: Yeah. So did you get the, did you get the horse when you moved up there?
1: Yes. Oh, awesome! Yes, my dad bought me uh, my horse. His name was Lightning, and he was my first love. Like there were no boys, I didn't care. Like <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be with Lightning twenty four seven. And funny enough, um, my parents' care took a ranch in the same area here where you live. Oh, oh no really? kidding. Yes, it was. It was a cattle ranch, and they would drive the cows up into the woods um, to graze for the summer. And it was up here somewhere around cow Creek. <laughs> um, and so we would drive the cattle and I would ride lightning and we would drive them up and then we would gather them in the fall and bring them home. And I just lived for that. I just, yeah. cause you would go and camp and we would fish in the Creek and catch brook trout, you know, and you'd fry that on the campfire. And mm-hmm. I just, I lived for it. It was, it was absolutely fascinating. And, and fun and it, I didn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah. So
2: that's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a very idealistic childhood. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing that they were able to give to you guys. So you lived in Idaho for, was it about nine years before everything got crazy?
1: Yes. Nine years, um, before everything, before everything, yeah, changed.
2: So it was everything, everything was beautiful and, good and hard, but, but perfect at the same time. And then can you kind of walk us through how did things start to change? Like what led to what ultimately became known as Ruby Ridge?
1: Yeah. So I believe there were a chain of just different events that started happening and, you know, being a kid at the time, I don't necessarily, you know, have a great understanding of each thing that happened, but I know there were people my parents allowed to build a home and live on our property, and they got into some sort of scrap with them, and they ended up – someone ended up sending in a letter to – I I don't even know where they sent the letter to or who they sent it to, but it was threatening the president at the time, and they signed my dad's name to it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what got them kind of on the radar – um to begin with um i don't know for sure but that was just one of you know the things that happened and then um my parents were it, it's funny because um i've seen a couple of your podcasts and you talk about you know f- you filtering you know the things that you say and like editing certain things and i think back to my parents and and they didn't have filters mm-hmm. and they didn't self edit mm-hmm. i mean they spoke what they thought and what they felt and if you didn't like it like that wasn't, I mean, that was on you. That wasn't Mm -hmm. on them, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so the different friends that they made, you know, in North Idaho, it gathers a lot of different personalities from a lot of different places. And there's some people that, that, that moved, that were living, that were hiding from things. And there were some people that were there just to be left alone. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting because some of the people that befriended my parents actually ended up being, um, snitches for the government. Mm -hmm. So, it's my understanding that, you know, someone gets into trouble with the law, and you might know more about this, you know, having a law enforcement background than I do, but someone would get in trouble with the law, and then they would cut a deal, and they would say, okay, well, if you bring us information on this certain person, then, you know, your your punishment will be less or whatever. That's my understanding of it, not having that background, but... And you can jump in if. if yeah, I'm that's off. essentially
0: the case. You're talking like paid informants mm-hmm. um, to where you now have an incentive to do some bidding for the government.
1: Yeah, um, and in to my thought process is: is this person already a criminal? Mm-hmm. And so you're basically paying a criminal to gather information yeah, on someone.
0: Very less than ideal, imperfect system for sure.
1: Right. Right. And especially when you have money involved, yes, you know, because then what are they, are they making stuff up to get paid more? You Mm -hmm. know, things like that. These are just things I think about now. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, some of the people that had befriended them, we found out later were informants. And so my, we didn't know it at the time, obviously here, we wouldn't have been friends with them. Mm -hmm. Um, when we did find out or did start, start to suspect like the amount of betrayal you can imagine my parents felt was very deep mm-hmm. and very it was very hurtful, just incredibly hurtful. It sort of pulls the rug out from under you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start to question everything and everyone, but, uh, these particular, this particular person, um, invited my dad one year to go check out a group. Um, and it happened to be, uh, Aryan nations in Hayden Lake in North Idaho. And, My dad was not a joiner of anything after he and my mom had been hurt by a church. I mean, he was just done with joining anything. He was done with churches. He was done with pastors. And they had set themselves up as a church. And I remember him never wanting to go inside the actual building of the church because he was just done with that. Mm -hmm. you know. But my dad was also very curious, very opinionated. He liked to search things out for himself. And he's like, sure, I'll go with you. So he went and... That I believe that informant ended up introducing him to another one. Um, and that one was the one that talked him into cutting off or sawing off shotguns. Wow! So, so,
2: oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, go ahead. So, from my understanding, had he gotten a permit, it would have been legal. Is that true or is that misinformation?
1: I believe it was a $200 permit that it would have been legal, oh. but when this happened, so. For your listeners that aren't um, from a remote mountainous area, thirty years ago, Mm -hmm. um, a a type of place where you live and you you're snowed in for months at a time, Mm -hmm. you have to either walk out a couple miles to get to your vehicle to get anywhere, or you you're rich enough to have a snowmobile, or you know, my parents weren't; they were very um, I would say poor, I would say I grew up, grew up poor, but we felt rich. We never felt like we were poor, Mm -hmm. but this informant caught my dad at a very vulnerable time for him in that he, he needed money and he needed money to put groceries on the table. Like he needed to buy, he needed to buy bread and butter and, you know, cheese Mm -hmm. or whatever. So this informant offered to pay him more than what the actual shotguns were worth to take a hacksaw to him and cut them off for him. And so my dad agreed to do it and he took full responsibility for doing that. He's never denied it. He's never, you know, he said, yeah, I did it. Um, but he did it for the wrong person, obviously. Mm -hmm. And he shouldn't have done it because that's what basically started the, the entire snowball. Um, ended up, you know, being so destructive.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So to fast forward a little bit, he gets brought up on criminal charges for sawing off the barrel of the shotgun and he eventually reaches a point, was there a miscommunication somewhere along the line because he had actually leveraged your home and your property as, as a part of his bail? Is that correct?
1: Yes. So what happened, they, so my parents were, they were headed to town one day and this is so North Idaho they saw a broken down vehicle on the side of the road and they stopped to help the person in the broken down vehicle. And um, the agents knew my parents had that type of a personality and a heart that they would stop and help. And they were actually hiding in the truck and they ended up arresting my dad and my mom. They threw my mom in the snow and they confiscated her pistol and um, they took my dad to jail. And the information that he was given was that if he loses his his bond and the bond was our home. I believe it was a $10,000 bond. And if he lost that, if he lost his case, he would lose his bond. Mm-hmm. So he's like, how could I not lose my case? Like you literally entrapped me. Mm-hmm. You have all the evidence, mm-hmm. you know? So he came home and, you know, shared with us, you know, if I lose the case, we lose our home We're homeless. Mm-hmm. And that was some really hard information, you know, to, to learn. And we found out later that was wrong. Right. So it wasn't even the correct information. Mm-hmm.
0: Cause I had heard that and I was a little confused as to how that was the case. Um, so that explains a lot. So eventually he now fails to appear for his court date, correct?
1: Yes. And that was another mistake on. So I believe his, his court date was February 20th and they sent him a letter saying it was a month later. Right. right. So when he didn't show up to court, um they so the media got a hold of it. Um the US Marshals said they were gonna, you know, take take him out and and all this stuff. And we were hearing this stuff on the radio. Oh my gosh. And it was coming up, you know, through our friends and things like that. And so when he missed his court date, it was almost like so there wasn't it wasn't like, oh, there was a mistake made here. It was like, okay, we're gonna go take him out because he missed his court date, mm. is my understanding of it, being, you know, a kid <laughs> and kind of watching. Um it's frustrating because even now, you know, the media likes to carry this narrative that he just chose not to go to court, mm-hmm. but he never got the chance to make the choice.
0: That was my I mean, next question because these are such massive details within the backstory of Ruby Ridge as so many of us uh, mm-hmm. have come to know it and it feels like they are glossed over or left on entirely. Is that, is that a tremendous, I'd imagine it's a tremendous source of frustration for you.
1: It's very frustrating. It is very frustrating. Yeah. Um, there's just there's there's certain like you said there's there's massive details that are minimized, right? Mm-hmm. And it's easy. Then we were talking about this how it's easy to make someone disposable mm-hmm. once you completely disagree with who they are as a person and what they've done, and then you just throw them out with the trash. Yeah, and I think that's so easy to do when we read, you know, a column in a newspaper which. That's really all we had back then, or hear something on the news, or we didn't have social media back then. Right. We had newspapers and we had, you know, the, the nightly news and the narrative that was picked up and just got, of course, he was also a white supremacist. He was a white supremacist that chose not to go to court and, you know, all of yeah. these these buzzwords that are labels and they're very damaging, mm-hmm. um, very damaging. Yeah. So we have to be careful with labels, I think.
2: Yeah, for Agreed. sure. Especially, like, had it had it been portrayed as this is a family that lives in the mountains and, you know, four little kids and a mom and dad and they homeschool and they have a horse and they garden and it would have been perceived so differently Yes, by the public. But they created this FBI profile on even your mom and made it sound like she was this religious fanatic that would kill her own children rather than come down the mountain is what I read on that.
1: That is so heartbreaking to me that that has become her Mm -hmm. story, that that's become the memory of her that everyone collectively knows and the letters that she wrote out of frustration. Mm -hmm. I look back on those letters and I read Facebook posts to political leaders by people that you can have thousands of them that are worse than the letters that my mom wrote out of hurt, frustration, not knowing where to turn, who to talk to, how to get out of this thing that has that was really starting to to gain traction. She did not know what to do and mm-hmm. she was angry as well, not only with, you know, having friends that weren't friends, yeah. but being entrapped, my dad being entrapped. And then, you know, all of a sudden here he's this wild animal up in the woods and they're going to go take him out. I mean, she was at her wits end and mm-hmm. I do not blame her. Yeah. But that was not her whole story. Right. That was one tiny blip in the timeline of her life. Right. And it was like one of the lowest, one of the lowest in her life. Yeah. She was an amazing woman. Who,
0: who was your mom? Can you speak to the type of person your mother was?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry.
2: No, no. They're there for.
1: Thank you. Um. She was beautiful in so many ways. She, you remind me of her a lot. Just because you have to have some kind of internal grit and like some kind of internal just love for your family to like go out to North Idaho and live however you got to live and get it done because you see a better life for your family. And she did. And she loved her family like so deeply. She was willing to do what she needed to do to provide the best kind of life for them that she thought would be the best for them. And She was very educated. She loved her dad. She was a perfectionist in a lot of ways. She could make something out of nothing. She could stretch a nickel into a dime. She didn't complain. She went without so that we could have. I think it describes moms like all over the country in a lot of ways. You know, just you want what's best for your family and you do the best you can with the knowledge that you have at the time to make that happen.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's who she was. Yeah. And uh, I hope to be half the woman that she was, you know?
2: Well, just that. Just your testament of your mom speaks to who she is. The fact that you can sit here 30 years later and and speak so highly of her just shares who she is with everybody. And I think that's that's such an amazing thing. Because I do feel like your mom also got kind of lost in the retelling of the story. And... You just, you never heard much about her, just a few little blips, like you said, and you can corner any mama bear into a corner and if you're going to get a different mama bear, then she is with her cubs.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. She, she was so strong. I mean, my dad delivered my little sister on top of the mountain, yeah. you know, and for her to make that decision, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That was her fourth child. She was in her forties. I mean, I, I, there's no way I could do that. I mean, I look back at that and I'm like, whoa, that's some grit. must have been scary. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was. I think in a lot of ways, I mean, there's probably a lot of things that scared her all the time. Mm -hmm. I know being a mom myself, I mean, I have fears all the time about my child. It Mm -hmm. keeps me on my knees. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine. I I wish I could talk to her and just pick her brain now, being Mm -hmm. in my 40s. Yeah,
2: yeah. I I can't imagine as a mom how consumed she must have been and and probably angry for what had happened to her family and her children and and the fact that your life was so altered and changed. It seems so blown out of proportion that that you could something like this could become so serious and just even be on the news at all when the the crime committed which he was never, you know, it was never even he he never even got to to go to trial on it. All he had to do was get a permit. So how serious is this offense? Anyway, why the marshals? Why, why did this become such a big deal? It seems so unnecessary.
1: Yes, uh, I have pondered that my entire, you know, life since it has happened. And one of the conclusions I came to, um, and maybe you'll be able to speak to this, Jeremy, is like I said, my dad didn't have a filter, and he was an ex-Green Beret. He had a lot of pride. He had a lot of, you know, I'm my own man type personality, mm-hmm. right? So they approached him um, after they had, you know, convinced him to solve the shotguns, and they had him, and they said, okay, Randy, well, we have you now, you know, on on tape doing this, and you're busted, basically. We would like you to become an informant for us, for Aryan Nations. Because my dad was very likable. People would listen to him. He um, he had a sense of humor. He He was just, he was a likable guy. And I think, you know, they sort of wanted him for that purpose. But my dad, at that point, I mean, if you can imagine his sense of justice and righteousness and are you kidding me? Like you trapped me and now you want me to work for you. Mm -hmm. He was just not about it. Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine the conversation between, I can't imagine on my dad's side, but I can't imagine the conversation between my dad and this ATF agent. Well, Weaver, we want you to come work for us now, how that went. I know my dad probably like, gave him the what for and was like, you're a joke. Mm-hmm. That would be my biggest, you know, knowing my dad and his fiery sort of spirit. Um, you may have more insight in like how law enforcement works. I know I, w- I've never directly of egos
0: for sure. And I think it definitely speaks to your, your father's character. And I think it's so important to kind of like you just said, to place ourselves in his shoes in that moment, because quite honestly, with my background, I don't know how I would re- respond in a situation like that, but I will tell you that I do completely understand where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you feel that sense of betrayal in the moment. And then in the next, you feel as though you were being pressured into making a decision that goes against your, your very being. Mm-hmm. And so I, I completely understand. And like I said, I I, I was a patrol officer um, and I wasn't responsible for, for flipping CIs or doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I completely understand where your was coming from in that situation.
1: Yeah. I, I kind of wonder what the agent, you know, if he had, if he had an ego and if he had his own pride and he had his own sort of, well, I'm the law and you're going to do what we tell you to do or else kind of, you know, and when those two personalities clash, I, It's not good. Looking
0: back at it, I think the entire ordeal, if I can refer to it as such, stems in large part to the fact that so many people allowed their pride and ego Mm -hmm. to override their more rational brain. Yeah. Because kind of like Melissa just pointed out, the response that ensued once we had what was chalked up as being a barricaded subject, essentially, with your your father and your family staying put there on your property – it It did not match the level of severity in the crimes that he was being charged with not not even in the same remote ballpark by any means, yeah. and which is so baffling looking back at it so that being the case, one of the questions that I had for you being given my my background in law mm-hmm. enforcement and come to find out your son is now working in law enforcement is kind of what your your general um outlook on law enforcement law enforcement as a whole is i mean we came in here and we walked by the wall full of patches and I have my, my, my thin blue line flag hanging up here on the wall, given what it is that you've endured and lived through and, uh, overcome in your life. how is it that, how do you view modern day law enforcement?
1: Oh my gosh, they have a tough job, an incredibly tough job and obviously, um, a servant's job and it's very close to my heart. Um, I don't hold anything against law enforcement. As, as a whole. And I don't think we can do that in any capacity with, with sort of any group. Um, at the end of the day, I believe we're all individuals making choices and we can make good choices or we can make bad choices. It doesn't matter what your profession is. Mm-hmm. And so I've met, you know, in the in my book signings just across across this nation, I've met law enforcement that men in law enforcement that are just, they're, they're literally brought to tears in at my book table over what happened. And I respect them highly for the job that they have to do. And they're putting their lives on the line for us every single day. And I don't think a lot of the time they get enough credit. I do feel there are people in law enforcement that shouldn't be in law enforcement. Um, I don't know if they're suited for it, mm-hmm. you know? and that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, at the end of the day, when we lay our heads down at night on the pillow, we're all individuals making choices. And some of us make good choices and some of us make bad choices. Yeah. And like you said, the pride and the ego thing, um, those can fuel choices. Fear can fuel choices, you know, um, I'm like, I'm on my knees for my, you know, just for my own kid, because I want to make sure that he's making the best choices and and he's protected. It's a scary world out there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think having, you know, a humble spirit can go a long way. I also know you bump up against some really nasty things and you have to be ready for them, Mm -hmm. you know? So there were. I know there was there was a group that that was called to Ruby Ridge. I think they were from Colorado, and they just turned around and walked off and said, "We don't want any part of this." Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, people like that are my heroes mm-hmm. because they made a choice and they made a good choice. And so, when we are confronted with a choice that, "Hey, you're going to do this, or you're you're going to lose your job if you don't," you know, are we going to make the choice that we're willing to lose our job to do the right thing? you know, and it it gets, the waters get muddy. They really do. Mm -hmm. And people at the end of the day, make the choices that are best for them. But, um, I support our law enforcement. I don't, I don't hold what happened to me up there against law enforcement at all. Um, there's too many good ones out there Hmm. to throw the whole group in the garbage. And it's like that with anything.
2: I think that's a really admirable, incredible stance. I think a lot of people would harbor so much anger that it would just blanket an entire group. So I think that's really incredible that you can do that. Um, So let's go back a little bit. So he misses the court date. Now he doesn't know what to do. So your mom and him decide we're just going to stay up here and try to till somebody helps us till we get this figured out. So what does that look like? And how long did that go on?
1: Yeah, that was a that was a heavy conversation. I, I vaguely remember it happening, um, one night and it was, it was like, well, now what, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, that ended up going on about 18 months. Um, uh, unbeknownst to us, they had started surveillance like on our property and on our cabin and things like that. And we had people supporting us that would bring us, you know, groceries and, Um, there were some people that were just absolutely amazing in that time for us. I remember, uh, one family brought my mom like donuts and flowers on mother's day. And, um, we ended up reconnecting with them years later, which was amazing. they lived in Montana and we ran into them at a fair. Oh Oh, I was showing my horse and we ran into them and we reconnected that relationship and it's been a blessing. Um, And then there were some that were coming up that my parents didn't know if they were more paid informants. Mm -hmm. So it was wild. It was weird because you didn't know if the people helping you were really not helping you. Mm -hmm. So it was unnerving, you know, and then being a teenager and not being able to go anywhere or leave the mountain. You know, I was just coming into being 16 and, you know, not really knowing what was going to happen trying not to just worry about it and thinking it would, it would get figured out, you yeah. know, and when 18 months goes by, that's a long time to sort of get numb to it and just daily life has to happen. Yeah. You know, and when you live that way, your, your job is sur- just surviving. I mean, from hauling water to, to doing the laundry, i hanging it on the line and baking and, mm-hmm. you know, chopping wood and all that stuff. Just living is a full-time job. And so you get just caught up in the daily daily life and then my mom was pregnant with my little sister as well so she you know had that to sort of look forward to and she was making baby clothes and bibs and quilts and all of that stuff so in a lot of ways it was just life as usual we just didn't go anywhere yeah so
2: did you have any idea you were being watched in that time
1: um no that was the weird that was the weird part and then um some members of the family went for a hike and found some equipment at one point. And then we were told, you know, Oh, they might be keeping an eye on us here, you know? So that was, uh, that was an interesting discovery, but that was like way into, you know, the 18 months, I -hmm. I think, think just looking back on it. Hmm. And again, my memory is horrible because I think as a self-defense mechanism, My brain, like, blocked out so many things. And so when I sat down to write my book, um, like, literally, I would have to sit down at the computer and pray before I started. And then the things that the Lord brought to my mind, it was just amazing. It was like, I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about that in so long. Yeah, You know, so he kind of helped, God helped me write the book and brought a lot of things to memory, but...
2: And you've said many times that your brother, Sam, he was two years younger than you. Yes. Was your best friend growing up.
1: Yes, without a doubt.
2: So you guys really relied on one another probably for entertainment and everything else in yes. that 18 months.
1: Yes, yes. We relied on each other all the time. I was his his big protective sister and, and he was just this brilliant, he was a brilliant kid. I mean, I, I, I think about what he would be doing now if he were still here and, you know, all these TikTok brains and YouTube, you know, they're creating all kinds of crazy things. And yeah. and it, I just I see him. He's had a very mechanical brain, and he had he used to read encyclopedias for fun. And then he would he would quote them, and I would argue with him about stuff. And then he'd show me where he was right, and of course I would get mad at him for that. But he was always right, and he would fix things for me. And we would build forts together, and we would fish, and we would hike, and we were just inseparable. Yeah. We just did everything together and, you know, we fought as hard as we played sometimes, of but course. yeah, he yeah. was, he was my best bud.
2: Yeah. All right. So here's, here's kind of the, the harder part of the story. So take us to that August morning when things just all of a sudden changed.
1: Yeah. Um, it was a normal morning. Uh, it, there wasn't anything, odd that I can remember about it at all. It was August and everything was dry and the grasshoppers were thumping in the dust, you know, mm-hmm. and it was just, um, a typical morning until the dogs, uh, started barking. And, um, I was in the house. I remember, um, the dogs started making commotion and then I just kind of wandered outside and, uh, Sam and dad and Kevin took off sort of after the dogs and, um they had they decided they were gonna, you know, follow Stryker because Stryker he was I believe he was a uh he was like a yellow lab and uh what do they call those livestock guardian dogs, the big white ones, the Pyrenees. Pyrenees. I think he was half and half and so he was huge. He looked like a lab, but he was huge. And he was really alarming. He was really sounding the alarm. So they believed he was on to some kind of a large animal. He was alarming like it was a bear or a moose or something like that. And so they're like, well, we're going to follow striker and see if we can, you know, figure out what he's after. And so I just thought, okay, you know, and I didn't go. I was like, yeah, we'll let them do that. It was just kind of a lazy morning. Um, and until I heard, uh, gunshots and yelling and, um, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew there should not have been gunshots. Like, that was abnormal. That was not. And it was summertime, so they wouldn't have been shooting any kind of an animal. Mm-hmm. It was way out of character. And I, my immediate thought was, striker cornered a bear, and they're firing to scare the bear and, or break the dog and the bear or something up. Because that's what my dad had taught us to do as kids. You know, we, we carried, because we would go out we'd be lot we'd get lost for hours and there were no cell phones. There was no way to get a hold of mom and dad. If we mm-hmm. ran into a bear, like we had to take care of it. Or we ran into a cat, like yeah. we were on our own as kids and we were free range mm-hmm. as they call it. We were wild, you know? And so my dad taught us to shoot very young and, you know, we carried, we carried guns with us when we were out in the woods cause it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. But the first thing you would do is fire in the air. If you ever ran into an animal that was Challenging you, Mm -hmm. Um, you wouldn't try to shoot the animal; you would try to scare it off, Mm -hmm. which is safer anyway. Because if you wound a bear, Mm -hmm. you're in for it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and we knew that. Yep. So scaring an animal is what immediately came to my mind, but that that wasn't what happened. Um, My dad ended up coming home first, and I had gone out to the rock that overlooked the driveway, and I was just waiting for him to come back and he came home first and, you know, I was like, where is, where's Kevin, where's Sam, you know, and and my dad, he was very, you know, shaken. And he was like, he's like, I don't know. I hollered at him. He said, I think they're coming in behind me. He said, I ran into someone in camouflage and he's like, my shotgun jammed. Um, He was trying to fire in the air. Apparently what had happened is they had split up, so there was a logging trail, and Sam and Kevin had gone one way and Dad had gone another, and they were going to try and meet up in the middle at whatever striker was chasing. Um, And they ended up running into U.S. Marshals instead, so it wasn't an animal. Um, So when my dad, separate from Sam and Kevin, had run into... This person in camouflage, this person in camouflage had screamed out, Freeze, Randy. And my dad basically said, F you. But he knew Sam and Kevin and the dog were down this road on the other side. And he started screaming at them, Sam, Kevin, get home, get home. And he said, I pulled my gun out to fire in the air because they would know to head home if they heard gunfire. Um, he said, But my shotgun jammed. Well, there was other gunfire then had started to take place, and he didn't know it at the time um, what actually, you know, was happening, but Sam had called out, I'm coming, Dad, and so Dad believed that Sam was on his way home, and Kevin came walking back up the driveway a little bit later, and I could tell he was crying, and his hat was gone, and it was just that like, that's when the world just ended for me because he said, Sam's gone. And I I was like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I just, I just broke down bawling. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around what he was saying. And he said, yes, he's like, his face was turning blue. And I just, I knew at that moment, you know, I didn't want to believe it, but I knew just by how terrible Kevin looked that, It was just, I mean, that was sort of, I think a part of me had died that day. Um, I know a part of me died that day with Sam. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about. It's hard to think about. It's. Um, what we found out later is that Stryker had been barking at Men in camouflage in the woods, and the story was that Kevin had come back and shared with us is that Sam would been he was following Stryker down the path, and the Marshals shot Stryker in front of him, and my dad had heard Stryker yelp, um, but they didn't kill him. They shot him sort of in the spine or in the back, and so Stryker yelped and he wasn't he didn't die right away, and so my brother um, screamed out at them. Um, you shot my dog. And then from what I understand, he fired shots into the woods. Well, they were hiding in camouflage, full camouflage in the woods. And my brother was on the logging trail with the dog. So Sam and the dog were out in the open and they were in the woods. And Sam only probably had an idea of what direction. So then he turned around and started running up the logging path and they shot him in the back of the arm And then they shot him in the back. And he was 14 years old, and he was not a big 14-year-old. He was a little kid. Like, he hated the fact that he was such a small little kid at 14. Like, that was a big embarrassment for him. But there's no way he could have mistaken him for anything but a kid. Mm -hmm. And he was running away when they killed him. So it's really hard. It's really hard for me to think about, even to this day. And I've been telling this story you know, over and over again, years. But being just an adult, when I separate myself from the story, and like you said, you know, the punishment not fitting the crime, I think about that a lot. And I think about, you know, here's this 14 year old little kid shot in the back. And what was it over? Well, how did this get started? Right? It wasn't anything that should have escalated like that. So um, they had said they were up there just, they were doing surveillance, Um, but I do believe one of the agents, their job was to eliminate the dog that day because our dogs were our warning system. And so I don't know, there's another choice for you. Had they made the choice not to eliminate the dog that day had Sam, would mm-hmm. Sam still be here? If they would have pulled back and said, now's not the time to to do this, you know, we've been compromised or whatever. I don't know. I've never talked to any of them personally. Mm-hmm. So it's, for me, you know, I just, it's just things that I think about now. Completely you know? understandable. Yeah. So, so
0: now at this point we have an initial um, firefight. There's a gun battle there on the property. You have your brother who passes away Mm -hmm. during this incident. You now have a federal law enforcement officer who also passed away during the same gun battle, which ratchets the level of seriousness up tremendously. Yes. So there is a now secondary response, an an overwhelming response. Am I accurate in describing it that way? yes. Because every single photograph and, and video clip that I've seen in the meadow section beneath the cabin literally ends up looking like a scene from Vietnam. Is that something that you were aware of at the time? Did you, did you have a visible line of sight to all of that, that staging area down below?
1: Um, we didn't have a visual line of sight, but we could hear things moving in into the valley.
0: And we're talking armored vehicles, tanks, yes. helicopters. Yes.
1: One thing I would like to bring up about the U.S. marshal that passed away, um, and that's heartbreaking to me as well is that it was never proven who actually killed him, which is also heartbreaking to me in a lot of ways um, because I guess there's not a lot of closure there either. (laughs) During the trial, Jerry Spence was, and it was actually during the trial, they were looking at a backpack that Mm -hmm. he had been wearing and they found a bullet in his backpack. Um, I was told that the, the submachine gun that they'd been given to take out the dog was silenced. And so, you know, there's, you can speculate all day long. I feel like if it would have been on the side of my family, they would have proved who, who actually did kill him. And had it been Kevin, I don't think Kevin would be a free man right now. Mm -hmm. Had it been my brother, I think they would have fully pinned it on my brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's still no, I don't have closure Mm -hmm. on that part. So friendly fire
0: is a completely plausible theory.
1: I mean, In you said case, it, yeah mm-hmm. i mean i I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, and it's sad to me, you know, all the way around, I've had you know a family member reach out to me of his, and I will never share that person's name just because it's it's um it's such a private and personal journey. I would never want to put them on the spot, but um, after I came out with being able to forgive, they reached out to me. And, you know, my heart breaks for them, too, because there's loss on both sides. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we were talking about this, we have a lot more things in common than we do have differences. Mm-hmm. And death of a family member, like, it's death of a family member, mm-hmm. you know, when you go through that, that's, it's awful, mm-hmm. you know. So I just, I want to put that out there because there's human, they're, they're on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so...
0: I appreciate it. And it's another one of those very significant details that kind of gets glossed over Mm -hmm. in the retelling of the story.
2: Right. All they say is, well, he fired two rounds, that Sam fired two rounds, and then a marshal ended up dead. But they never once have said that it was Sam that killed him, and they never once have said that it was Kevin that killed him. So I always thought that was very suspicious as well. Like, why didn't they determine who did? And why has that just been...
1: And the state of Idaho brought charges against Kevin in later years mm-hmm. and never, you know, he. So, yeah, it, it's very like there's a lot of things surrounding it that haven't been yeah. necessarily put to rest.
2: And yeah. then my other question was, they, they shot Sam in the back. They obviously saw him fall. Why was that not reported? Because they keep saying, well, we didn't know that Sam was dead until we found his body in the tool shed. How, how not?
1: Yeah, I think, so there were different, and this goes back to what you were saying about the meadow and all of the, the AP, armored personnel carriers and the helicopters and the, the army tents and, you know, everything. We could hear everything moving into the valley. And at this point, other agencies got involved.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you not only had now U.S. Marshals, you had ATF, you had FBI, you had... Um, I'm sure they were briefing local law enforcement, which local law enforcement, you know, had the sheriff walked up and knocked on the door and said, Randy, let's sit down and have a conversation on how we can end this. I don't think we would be sitting here today having this conversation. Mm -hmm. I do think my dad was amicable enough, someone with enough guts to sit down and say, you know, there's one of my local people that he would have... They would have been able to find a better route to take,
0: which eventually is what occurred. Not not with the sheriff, but with um, Bo.
1: With Bo, yeah. But that, yeah, that was after everything, right? Yeah. Right. right. Um, uh, and that that's another great point. I mean, a third party negotiator is key in these mm-hmm. situations mm-hmm. in standoff type. I mean, I, I can't reiterate that enough. Mm a third party negotiator because you're just too heated. These two sides are too mm-hmm. heated. They can't talk to each other. You right. can't communicate. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. forget it, Agreed. but someone to come in that has a level head and a clear head and can speak with, you know, some compassion and like understanding of what both sides are going through. Yes. Yeah. I think that's huge. But, um, with these other agencies getting involved, I don't think they were communicating with each other the way they should have been. Okay. And, why didn't they say, Yeah, you know, who shot him in the back twice? Like they, they shot his, the back of his little arm. My dad said they blew his elbow off. Like they shot him in the elbow and then they shot him in the back and he was in the open. So if you think about some of the thickest North Idaho woods to the point, it's like old growth cedars and it's dark and then you have a logging trail and that's the only open point. And he's in the middle of the logging trail and they're in the old growth in the dark woods. Who's the most visible in that situation? Right. Mm-hmm. And who shooting at who is able to see what they're shooting at? Mm-hmm. I mean, those are just my questions, but um I don't know why they yeah. I mean somebody had to have known. Right. But then they also let Stryker just lay there and they wrote they drove over him with vehicles. Like Stryker, he just left was left laying in the middle of the road from what I've been told. And they just drove over his body, you know, just, there's just a lot, there's a lot of details that um, I have carried for many, many years that I haven't necessarily shared mm-hmm. just because they are so heavy. And it's such an inflammatory story. Mm-hmm. My heart has never been to inflame people to mm-hmm. the point of them, you know, doing something stupid because they're angry right. mm-hmm. because someone can, they can ruin their life over a dumb decision just out of emotion. Mm-hmm. And I've felt a responsibility for this story for so many years to make sure that, you know, it's told, but not in a way that's going to cause anyone to be inflamed. You know, yeah, it's just the story itself does that, yeah. you know? So those are just some of the things I'm, and I don't know why they're coming out right now, honestly. Maybe because you guys are so easy to talk to <laughs> well, we yeah. appreciate
0: you being here and uh being willing to tell this tell this story, kind of like I told you outside, I feel like it's so important that your story be be told and be heard because Thank you. it's 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 unfathomable to to most of us, and the bravery that you you exude in in retelling this story is so admirable and I find it so incredibly inspirational. So not that we're done or wrapped up here, but I want to thank you once again for, for being willing to sit here and to, to tell this story.
1: I really appreciate that. I mean, for a long time, I felt like I didn't have a voice and just hearing that is, is very healing. So I really, I really appreciate that. I've struggled. I feel like I've struggled upstream for a lot of years and, Then social media came along and it's like, here, here's your voice. But it was just like, do I want it now? Yeah. Do I want to have the voice now? Because there's a lot of voices out there and there's a lot of voices saying a lot of things. And Mm it's, you know, do I want to add to that or not? Right. You know, but I do. I really appreciate that. It it means a lot. And the reason I share and the reason I've been sharing for all these years is so it doesn't happen again. Mm. We can't let it happen again. It's too terrible. And the people that I've met over the years that went through it with us, like they went through it with us on TV, you know, they went through it with us in the newspaper, reading between the lines and going down the rabbit holes, you know, Mm -hmm. they're different rabbit holes than what we have now. I mean, our rabbit holes are at the touch of our phone screens, Mm -hmm. you know, but back then they're just reading between the lines. They're like, well, what we're being told, I don't think what we're being told is what actually happened, what actually happened, you know? Yeah, And... But the thing I appreciate appreciate about both of you when I started to watch some of your podcasts is you're like, we need to have conversations about things, civil conversations mm-hmm. about things without the inflammatory back and forth and canceling each other and and throwing our each other's opinions in the garbage because we don't agree in that moment on mm-hmm. that day, you know. Yep. And so I was looking forward to you know to sharing. so
0: that's very kind of you to say, thank you.
2: Yeah, we really appreciate it. It's such a it's such a heartbreaking story. I I put myself in, I guess in in like the mom role when I was hearing everything. I think because you guys as children were the age of my children now, Hmm. and so I really think about just the the family dynamic and what your mom was going through in that moment as well. I literally cannot imagine what that morning was like for her and yeah I don't know I like you can't mentally go there um but I mean you guys lived it so like what what happened from there on uh, how did yeah. she cope with that how did your dad cope with that how did you cope with that morning
1: it was it was bad it it I mean, I don't think the tears stopped for me anyway. If they did, it was only just to get basic things taken care of as far, you know, as our needs to survive. And none of us were eating, really. None of us were, we weren't really talking much to each other. It was more just like this collective black cloud of grief just settled. My mom, um, she... She was always thinking ahead, and I think it started to rain. It either started raining the day Sam died or the next morning, I can't remember, but she had said, you know, let's get some buckets out and just catch rainwater off the roof because she knew we weren't going to be going down to the spring to get water because they had, you know, sort of made it clear to us they were just, you know, shooting. And we still at that point thought, and I I look back on that, I'm like, this is just crazy. We thought that, but we were still hoping and believing someone was going to come and talk to us. Hmm. Like someone was going to drive up the driveway and get on a bullhorn or try and communicate with us and say, you know, some kind of terrible, this terrible accident happened. We still were thinking that like it was, we were still looking for leadership, I guess you could say in that situation.
2: Yeah, like and, an olive branch.
1: hmm like, like somebody's gonna come say, okay, now how how are we gonna move forward from mm-hmm, here? Right. Um my mom was she was shattered. Sam, I mean, I, I'll say it to this day, I believe Sam was her favorite. And I don't say that in any kind of a, a negative way. Um she loved him so much, and it was probably In fact, I know it was the absolute worst 24, 26 hours of her life. Um, I know mid-afternoon, she just went upstairs to her bedroom, and she just, I can only imagine the grief she was going through. And then dad joined her a little bit later, and for the two of them I just I don't even know what that night what that night was like for them but it had to have just been horrendous I mean I spent the whole night awake just bawling my eyes out and I couldn't sleep I I, I couldn't come to terms with the fact that he was gone like I kept expecting him to come walking through the front door and my mom was a strong woman of faith like she believed the bible and you know, at one point she believed that, you know, he was, he'd come back, you know, she was that, that strong and that hopeful, I think, in her relationship with the Lord that she believed he would do that for her. And it's funny, recently, I grappled with that later on. Um, I didn't have any faith for 10 years following. I was angry, angry, thinking religion was part of the reason we had gotten in this mess and I wanted nothing to do with God. And Um, I grappled with that thinking, well, you know, here my mom had strong enough faith. She believed God was going to bring Sam back and he, God didn't do that. So, you know, if her faith could be that strong and he wouldn't do that for her, you know, that was a good reason for me to be mad at him. But I just learned recently, um, I was talking with someone about, about that. And these are just, you know, more things, more, more things you can discuss all day long, but, Someone shared with me, it's because your brother didn't want to come back, you know, like we, and I was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. Like, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, he, he's, he raised, he raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And he's like, you know what? You're going to do that too. And you're going to do more than I did. And it's like, hmm. So if my mom had that kind of a faith, you know, that, that he could come back, but he didn't. And I had never heard that, that theory before until recently. It's because your brother didn't want to come back. And I was like, you know what? I wonder if there's some truth to that. Like, he got to the other side and was like, this is way better than where I came from, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he had a strong faith in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Out of the two, uh, out of our whole entire family, the two family members that had the most faith in the relationship with God were my little brother and my mom. The rest of us needed more time needed more time. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. there was a point um, where I was grappling. I had become a new Christian myself and I was grappling with whether my mom and brother were in heaven because their belief system, my parents' belief system had gone from sort of basic mainstream Christianity to more of an Old Testament-based religion during their journey up Mm -hmm. there. And more of the works and um, grace got left out of it. Like Jesus on the cross got left out of it. I don't remember being taught that as a child, more of the old Testament judgmental God where Mm -hmm. you had to keep the laws and stuff like that. And so when I became a Christian, I'm when I, when, when Jesus saved me and he saved me radically, um, I was grappling with that with my mom and I was asking the Lord, I'm like, are, are they in heaven? Because their beliefs were just, Wrong, but I knew they had this strong relationship with God, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't very long after I had been praying about that that the um, a reporter gave me a picture of my mom that was taken on surveillance one of the surveillance cameras and she's dressed in complete white, and I knew then that God had her because I did the laundry and we didn't wear white on the mountain because it was too hard to keep clean. And you just, we didn't, she's literally in a white robe and she's got white shoes on. She didn't have white shoes and she didn't have a white robe. Wow. And so when I saw that picture, I was like, wow, Hmm. thank you, Lord. Like it just gave me so much peace that I knew she was with him. How else can you explain that picture? I can't explain it. And I did the laundry. Yeah. You know, so I guess I got off way off track there. No, (laughs) No, that's fine. That's that's incredible.
2: I've seen that picture. I know exactly what photo you're talking about. Yeah. I did wonder why she was wearing (laughs) white. I was like, they live up there. I'm like, wow, she's brave.
1: And I believe that that was either the day Sam passed or it was the morning she passed. I'm not sure which day that was, but Mm -hmm. it was one of those two days. Wow. And that picture came into my life like shortly after I had prayed uh, to the Lord about whether or not they were with him. So, yeah, pretty powerful.
2: Yeah, it's incredible.
1: I just, yeah.
2: Well, now you know. Yeah. And that's.
1: Yeah, I do know now. Yeah. You know, I think when you first, you know, when I first got saved, I had so many questions about so many things and Mm -hmm. I hit, I was hitting God with them right and left. I'm like, why did this happen to me? Like out of all the people in the world, why did I go through this? Mm -hmm. You know, I had tons of stuff for him. Just why did you pick me for this? (laughs) You know, and did you, did you find
0: clarity with that? I
1: I did. I did. Um, I, I know he, I still have questions about a lot of it you know, but I know he never wastes a pain over or hurt. And I know things that are meant for evil, he means for good. And so we can go through things on this earth that are terrible and he can turn them around for good. If we allow him to, if we allow him to heal us of our pain and heal us of our hurts and use those things, then your story helps others. And it becomes a full circle thing. And it's really beautiful because it's also part of your healing. Because when they come back and tell you what your story did for me, and you hear that, and it just is so humbling and it's such a blessing because you know what you went through was not for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know that the family member that you missed out on so many years with, there, it wasn't for nothing. Like it's still, there's good coming from it. Mm-hmm. And when you go through it and you don't have that, And you're just in the pain and you're just in the mud and the messiness and the, in the hole and the despair. And you, you haven't come out to that other side yet. It's a hard, hard place to be. Yeah. It is such a hard place to be. And I was there for 10 years, you know, in a 30 year span, you think, oh, well, 10 years isn't that long. It was a long time for me. It felt like an eternity. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I
2: it's an unimaginable thing that you went through at such a young age. And and so you didn't witness your brother. So did they go and get him? Is that how that...
1: Yes. So um, my mom immediately, you know, when she found out, she's like, we're going to get Sam. We're not leaving him down there, I think, as any mom would, yeah. would be, you know. And so she was, you know, she was such a, a feminine just beautiful woman she wore skirts all the time and that was part of the old testament thing as well you know women not wearing men's clothing but she went put her jeans on and she's like we're going to get sam and so i stayed back um and it was kevin and my dad and my mom went back down to the y as it's called and known. and it was it was down past our property it wasn't really on our land but it was down past our property and I could hear them crying and screaming and, um, I knew, you know, for sure that Sam, you know, was gone at that point. So this happened shortly after dad and Kevin came back that mom was like, we're going to get him. And, um, I was just sort of hanging out on the rock that overlooked our driveway and and I saw them carrying him between the two of them and, that was all I could see. Like I had to turn away. I couldn't like, that was my last, um, sort of my last uh, view of my brother. And, um, I couldn't see him after that. I didn't want it to be my last memory. Um, mom and dad brought him up to our guest shed and they placed him in our guest shed and they cleaned his body and wrapped him in a sheet. And, you know, they offered for me, you know, to go see him. And I was like, I, I can't go see him because when my dad came out from cleaning him, like he had Sam's blood all over his jeans and he told us what happened and he showed us his rifle and how the bullet that had gone through, excuse me, gone through the back of his elbow had chipped the buttstock of his rifle. Um, And I just, I was like, I can't see him. I can't, I can't go there. I don't want seeing him, you know, gone to be my last, my last very last memory of him. So, um, that was a really hard day. That was a really hard day. Um, and then the next day, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that was when um, mom was, you know, putting buckets out to collect water and stuff. And uh, other than hearing, you know, things moving into the valley, that next day was fairly quiet as well until the dogs alarmed. And um, so my dad, before I could realize what had happened, um, Kevin and my dad had headed out the door to see what the dogs were after. And at that point, I think something in me, just uh, a switch flipped and I was all about like protecting my family. Like I was like, I don't want anything to happen to them. So I want to be there because I wasn't there when my brother died. And I think, and I still struggle with that to this day, but not being there to help him when I was his big sister to protect him, you know, and just knowing he died alone without me is just a very, very hard thing to this day that I still struggle with. But um, from that point forward, like a switch flipped and I became the protector. And so when I realized dad had left the house, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to go with him. I got to follow him. And so he and Kevin had sort of gotten ahead of me and they followed the dog out to the rock, um, because the rock overlooked our driveway and you could hear, you know, anyone coming in from that vantage point. And we were all just sort of sitting there, um, waiting to see if someone was going to try and make contact with us or sort of, you know, come up the driveway and we didn't hear anything. Everything was quiet. And so just kind of standing there listening. And if you've ever been in the mountains and you can just kind of hear how quiet everything Mm. is, you can, where we lived, you could hear things in the valley. You could hear the train, you could hear. So just standing out there and listening and we didn't hear anything. And so my dad had decided he was going to go check on or go check on Sam is what he said. Um, And he cut off to my right to head towards the little guest house And again, I was probably caught up in my own grief and my thoughts because he got away from me before I could like be on him. And when I realized he took off, I was like, again, I was like, oh crap, you know, I need to stay with him because like I said, this protective thing just came on me and I probably still have it to this day, (laughs) to be honest. But, um, I started following him and he got around the side corner of the shed where the door was where I couldn't see him. And so I was coming up around the shed and I came around the same corner where the door was and I heard a gunshot and I got around the corner and dad had already, he'd already gone around the other, the opposite corner. So when he, when I got there, he wasn't there, but then I went around the next corner to the other side of the shed and he was standing there crouched and he was like, I've been hit, and at that point, I was like, and then my mom, she opened the door to our cabin, and the door opened out towards the mountain, and we're, we're sitting like, dad and I are right here around the shed, and, and the door opened to our cabin, and mom's over here, and to get where mom was, we had to go out and around this big rock outcropping and tree And so we had a long sort of ways to go across the yard to get around into the cabin. And so I just put, I put my hand on my dad's back and I'm like, we need to get in the house. And my mom had popped the door open and she's like, what happened? And my dad's like, I've been shot. And she started just, you bastard. She started cussing. Like she was, she was letting them have it. So I put my hand on my dad's back and I'm like, we have to get in the house. We have to go now and what was going through my head was if you're going to start shooting at my family and you want to kill my dad you're going to have to kill a kid first and literally that's what was going through my head but i i was blocking him like i was blocking him and my back was to the sniper and i was like all right this is what's going to happen you're going to kill me first and i start pushing him towards the house so we're we're running and we go around the tree and the rock outcropping and the door's here and mom's be- mom's behind the door and the door had a window in it, um, just like a paned sort of glass window and her curtains were in it, but they were tied back. And she was standing there because our door had a bungee cord on it, so it would close on its own. And she was standing there blocking the door open, holding my baby sister. And so my dad and I are running. And I didn't know at this time, but Kevin had fallen in behind us and he was running for the house as well. I didn't know he was behind us. I was just focused on getting dad in the house and we all got to the door at the same time. And that's when I just heard in my left ear, just this massive boom. And I just felt like just f- fragments of something just hit my cheek. And then mom, She just, she just crumpled. She just dropped right beside me. And then Kevin, who was behind me, he fell in through the doorway in front of me and my dad had made it through the door into the house. And so it was like everything just around me just fell and I was left standing there beside the door. And when mom fell, she just, she fell and she was cradling my little sister and she was holding the door open still. And I was stunned. And I found out later, I think it was Bogue Grites that told me that the bullet carries the sound, which is why it was such a loud, like it left my ear just ringing. And what had happened is when the sniper shot through the, the, the window in the door, um, he shot my mom, and then that same bullet hit Kevin in his arm went through his arm and shrapnel went into his chest and he just he just fell right through the doorway and it's a miracle to this day that i'm still here i don't understand other than god's grace why that bullet didn't take me out and took kevin out instead it makes no sense to me mm-hmm. from our positioning because i was right next to her mm-hmm. and that stuff i felt hit my face that was part of her face and I didn't even realize it until, until later, but for all of that, just in one, it felt like just a split second of, and I still have trouble with this year. If I hear aloud sort of, if it's, it's a firework that I don't know is coming or it's a backfire from a car or it just still gets me to this day, but Thank God I have, you know, I've been able to work through a lot of that. If I know it's coming, it's not as bad. If I don't know it's coming, then it's pretty bad. But um, I'm able to work through it. I don't freak out or anything. Um, But it was the next few minutes after that were just, they were just very, very difficult. Um, I knew what had happened and... I didn't know how bad, as far as how badly Kevin was wounded. I didn't know how bad Dad was wounded. I guess at some point, I don't even remember, I made my own way into the house. And then I became focused on taking care of Kevin. And then Dad said, I've got to get Mama in the house. He picked up my baby sister, and she had, like, blood and stuff all over her face. And he was cleaning her off, and he's like, I've got to get the door shut. And so he pulled mom into the house and he bolted the door and that door stayed bolted until Bogreitz, you know, got us out. But Kevin, we thought Kevin was just going to die, you know, fairly quickly from his wounds. He, there was just a, you know, a massive puddle of blood in the kitchen and he was laying on his back on the floor and I had gone to get towels and things to try and help, any way I could. I didn't know how it was gonna help. But um he was laying there and he was just he was in bad shape. Um there was a lot there I mean there was just so much going on because you know my dad was trying to deal with my you know getting my mom in and and Kevin's on the floor and he's like moaning in so much pain and there's blood everywhere and I think I just I I kicked kicked into sort of go mode on how I can help, you know, Kevin. And he started to say he was cold and that, you know, he was thirsty. And, you know, that happens when someone's life is leaving them. And so um, I got him a blanket and got, you know, tried to get him something to drink. And then my dad said, we need a blanket to cover mom. And I went and got a blanket to do that. And I just remember thinking, you know, dad covered her face with the blanket. And I'm just like, he had i think mercifully he had pulled her hair like over her face because the bullet had it had taken half of her face and he pulled her hair over i think so when i went to help him cover her i just kept thinking you don't cover people's faces like the things that go through your mind when you're in the middle of something like that are just kind of random but i just remember thinking you don't cover people's faces you just don't it didn't it hadn't like hit me like she's she's gone like she's gone and I'm, I'm covering her face with a blanket, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it was bad. And, and so Kevin uh, laid there for a while. And we, we didn't know, you know, if he was if he was going to make it. And I think after a little while, when he hadn't passed, um, was when we helped get him moved into the living room into the recliner. And then I sort of, Helped dad take over taking care of him for the next 11 days, just trying to keep his wounds clean and, um, you know, get him water or what he needed. But we had some really bad days and nights, just really bad days and nights. They all ran together.
2: And so you guys were stuck, I mean, locked inside the cabin feeling as if we stick our head outside the window, we're Mm -hmm. next. Or this went on for eleven days. So during that time, you must have had to have stepped up as role of mom for your two little sisters.
1: Yeah, um, my middle sister uh, sort of took over caring for my baby sister in a lot of ways, and I took on the role of, you know, getting food from the kitchen and. Because moving about in the cabin, I mean, for me personally, it felt like they were just shooting now and we weren't supposed to make it out like they wanted us dead. And so for me personally, it was about staying down and away from windows and dad don't light a cigarette because they're going to see it in the dark, you know, like those kind of things. And I would crawl, you know, into the kitchen, staying low away from the windows you know, and go into the pantry and, and, you know, try to pull food out for my baby sister. And, um, then I also was taking, helping to try and take care of Kevin. And then at one point I was like, dad, you were shot too. We need to look at your, your wound. And he's like, I forgot all about it, you know, because the, the adrenaline and, um, his was a pretty clean, a pretty clean entry and exit, thankfully, So it didn't, I don't think it connected with any bone or anything. It was just a flesh wound, but we still had to treat that. You know, it went, it went into his shoulder and out through his armpit. Kevin's on the other hand, it was bad. His, his muscle on the outside of his arm was, it was about the size of a soup can lid and it was just poking out through the skin, like just the muscle and all of that. And then he had the entry and into his, his chest. And so, it was a terribly painful, terribly painful for him. There was one point, you know, he I don't think he wanted to continue and he he wanted he wanted my dad basically to to um, end his life and I it was the middle of the night and I heard him asking my dad to end his life and there was this long silence and I was just bawling and I was like, "No." I was like, "You we can't do you can't do this." Like and Um, My dad, finally, after this long silence, he's like, he's like, buddy, he's just like, you have to do it yourself if you're going to do it. He's like, I cannot do, I can't do this. You'll have to do it yourself, you know? And I'm so grateful that we made it through that horrible moment Mm -hmm. and it ended, you know, with Kevin still, still being with us. Thank God. Yeah. Um,
2: So there must've been so much hopelessness in that moment, in those days, in those 11 days. How, how did you get out? how did this end for your family?
1: Well, um, I think for me personally, I had made peace with the fact that I wasn't getting out and I, I didn't want to hurt anyone, but I wasn't going to let anyone else hurt my family if at all possible. And so there was that, um, there was just that resolve. I was like, okay, this is, this is it. You know, we're just, they don't want us to make it out. And there was, there was a point when we heard, we heard them crawling around underneath our house and my dad screamed out at them because we didn't know at this point, you know, what sort of, if anyone even knew what was happening to us or if it was Mm -hmm. all a big secret to the world. And so he was, he's, he's like, these guys under our house may be different from the ones that, you know, were doing the shooting. I'm going to tell them what happened. And so he would scream, he screamed through the floor and he's like, my son is dead. Vicky's dead. I'm wounded. Kevin's wounded. The girls are fine. Like he was communicating through the floor and our, our cabin was just a plywood cabin. It Mm -hmm. was nothing, you know, you could hear people talking, you know, through the walls and the floor and stuff. And we never got a reply or a response. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't know why that was, but he was still trying to sort of create a dialogue, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say. And, um, he's, he was so broken in that. Um, so after a while, um, obviously our family in Iowa got involved. They had been contacted, and um, I know my aunt had wanted my aunt. They they brought my aunt up in an armored personnel carrier to try and communicate with my dad at one point, but she couldn't hear her dad, and he couldn't really hear her in order to get anything across they had sent a robot up onto our front porch at one point and they wanted us to pick up a telephone off the robot. The robot, my dad looked out though. I didn't want my dad to look out the window because I was afraid his head was going to get shot off, but Mm -hmm. he looked out the window at the robot. And I believe, um, they might've even told Paul Harvey about picking up the phone off the robot because Paul Harvey, he did a, you know, he did kind of a plea for my dad to surrender and, Um, my dad looked at the robot and there was a shotgun on the robot aimed at the telephone. And so that was definitely not going to happen. Um, there's no way, there's no way I would have let my dad open that door and try and take that phone from Mm -hmm. a robot with a shotgun aimed at it. Yeah. I mean, I was terrified. I was literally terrified that any of us stuck our heads out. They were going to get blown off. Mm -hmm. Um, and they just kept confirming that to, in my mind, you know, Mm -hmm. being 16, it was just you keep proving to me that you can't be trusted. Right. Um, but, and then they had, uh, they had psychologists on bullhorns um, talking to my mom who was dead on the floor and, you know, just Vicky, we're having pancakes this morning. You know, don't you and the kids want to come out and have pancakes? Just open the door, you know, come have breakfast with us and things like that. So there was a lot of stuff going on that made me not want to come out of the cabin mm-hmm. at all and not trust them not come out of the cabin. Um, When my aunt was up there and she wasn't really clearly able to communicate, I saw it as something that was on purpose. I didn't think they wanted Mm -hmm. her to communicate with us.
2: It was like a carrot.
1: Yeah, or like maybe they're, you know, pretending they're doing the right thing in front of my family, but in reality they're not really making it, allowing it to happen the way it should. I don't know. There were all kinds of things going Mm -hmm. through my head. I didn't trust them at all. Um, But eventually uh, was contacted and Bo Greitz became part of the scene. And despite, you know, lots of rumors that my dad and Bo Greitz had served together or whatever, that wasn't true. But my dad knew who Bo Greitz was and he respected him and he knew Bo Greitz was running for president and he, he respected, you know, the fact that he had served and was the most decorated Green Beret and that Rambo movies had been based off of his rescues and things like that. So, um, He was someone that my dad was willing to talk to.
0: He trusted him. Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know. I think he trusted him more than I trusted him. Mm. And I don't necessarily think it wasn't Bo that I trusted. It was the whole situation. I was afraid because Bo, he wasn't afraid. Bo got out of the armored personnel carrier and came up to the house and he wanted to talk through the walls because he couldn't hear my dad. He's like, I can't hear him in this thing. I'm getting out, like whatever. Like he was the kind of guy we needed in the beginning to just come up to the house and sit down and have a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Um, he got out of the carrier and he came up to the, to the side of the house. And um, my dad said, the first thing was Bo, Vicky's dead. And Bo was just like, oh my God because none of them down there knew that um they had found Sam in the shed and they had taken him out and that's when the family got notified and everything but they everyone down you know at the roadblock supporting us which I'm so grateful for the supporters at the roadblock just everyday people everyday north idaho people they went down there and made their presence known and whether you agreed with their belief system or whatever They just, they were a presence holding another presence accountable. And that, I believe, was a huge part of why we got out of there alive, was just their vigilance in holding a line for us and saying this isn't right, you know. And I'm so thankful for them. Um, And I just, I want to say thank you to them right now you know, if there's any of them listening that follow your show, like, thank you for being there like that. That was huge. Um, but Bo showed up and I think at some point Bo offered my dad legal counsel through Jerry. And I think Bo might've committed Jerry before even Jerry committed Jerry. Um, but dad had started to make some plans with Bo to surrender and, so Bo came up the next day, and Bo got real pushy at one point, and that made me not trust him, and he was like, you guys got to leave, like, right now, like today, um, and he had come up, and he had carried my mom out, and he had promised not to let her body touch the ground and all of those sorts of things, and I really, you know, was thankful to him for that, to carry her out and everything, and, but I still wasn't ready to trust him. And so when he got pushy with us, I got very distrustful. And I I just told dad, I'm like, dad, I don't know. Like, I'm still scared. I'm like, what's to stop them from, you know, shooting Bo, you know, I thought, and then blaming it on us, you know, all these things were going through my head. Like I was just, I had zero trust for anybody, but, um, dad, he trusted him. And so when dad finally put his foot down and was like, no, and they had taken Kevin. So Bo had gotten Kevin out earlier and gotten him medical treatment. So that was before we surrendered. Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin really needed, he needed to get out of there and get to the hospital. Um, but when dad made up his mind, you know, I, I just went along with him. So yeah, Bo ended up getting us out of, out of the cabin.
2: And so what did that look like? Your dad just said, let's go. We're going.
1: Yeah. He said, you know what? I think we need to go. And, It it was the relationship that that we sort of as kids had with our parents is they did listen to us. You know, we had it wasn't just all you're the kid and I'm the parent. You do as I say, you know, we and I think they had a lot of my respect because of that. And so they would they treated us with respect and we gave that back to them in turn because we felt heard. Mm -hmm. And so he would hear me. And if he wasn't sure himself, then he may let me sway him a little bit. But when he made the decision, I knew when he made the decision and it was just dad made the decision. This is what we're doing, you know, and there wasn't an argument. So. so How did, it, it did, sorry. Did lot. you
0: eventually feel a sense of relief with leaving the cabin or were you still fearful even when making that initial contact with the law enforcement personnel that were on scene?
1: When we stepped out of the cabin, I fully expected to be shot at like. At that point, I wasn't feeling any relief, like walking away from the cabin. It was almost surreal. I felt like a walking dead person basically, which was, oh, I'm still alive. Look at that, you know, because I had expected not to be. And as we walked away from the cabin, I could see men in camouflage hiding sort of along the driveway and behind bushes and things like that. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, really? are you kidding me? And so I didn't know if any moment, you know, they wouldn't try and take me out, but I think I had made peace with death at that point. And it was like, okay, this is what we're doing. And so it was a very surreal moment. I think I had a very hard time when they separated us from my dad.
0: And at what point did that happen?
1: I believe that happened down at the end of our driveway. Um, they put us in one car and they put him in another and, I know they were getting him medical treatment at some point. They had strapped him to a stretcher because he had been shot too. And he hadn't eaten for 11 days and, you know, he had gotten very, very slim, you know, from that. And so we were separated, you know, very quickly after we left the cabin. And it was just myself and my sisters. And then when we got to the meadow... And we saw the whole military scene. You know, like you said, it looked just like out of a movie to me. And there were, you know, guys with boom boxes and wearing shorts and playing ball and, like, having a good old time like they were, you know, on vacation or something. And to me, I'm just like, all of this for my little family? Like, really? This is insane. Like, who's... What is this? Yeah. Like, wow. It was wow.
0: The entire scene, even in watching video clips, it's so surreal. Mm-hmm. And getting it from you here in person. It's um it it truly is mind-boggling, especially just being here in North Idaho and, and knowing that this is the setting for that that all of this occurred in. It's um I'm I'm so just kind of taken aback by the fact that you were able to move on from this and your story has become one of of perseverance mm-hmm. and strength. How did that happen? How did we go from you walking out of that cabin to you being the you that you are today?
1: Wow. A lot a lot happened. Um I look back over my life and there were many, many days, weeks, months, years I spent just surviving my own emotions. So it's I don't think it's really living if that makes sense. You're just surviving everything in you that's coming at you, whether it's grief or anger or, you know, sadness or just missing, you know, a person. And I think I made a decision at some point that I was going to prove to the world that we weren't who the world thought we were mm-hmm. and do the best possible representation of my parents that I could and that was all in my own like strength you could say I look back and I also see God carrying me in a lot of ways and before I even knew him his grace was on me and he was keeping me and carrying me but I there were days I was literally just surviving my own emotions and post-traumatic stress and um I didn't have counselors that I talked to I didn't have um, there were no victims advocates at the time I'd never had a victim's advocate or anything like that it was just... I felt like the whole world was against us. The whole world misunderstood me. I didn't even think a psychologist could understand where I was coming from, and so I had no really desire to talk to one. And like, how could you know what I've been through and think that you're going to help me? I mean, it was arrogant in some ways because yeah. I was a teenager and I'd just been through hell and mm. a hell that no one could say, "Hey, I've been there and done mm-hmm. that. Let right. me let me speak into your life." Right. And so I had no um, confidence in. Uh, So I might've been asked, you know, do you want to speak to someone And being 16 and hard headed and coming out of old Testament religion and, um, sort of, you know, the apocalyptic mindset, you know, and the things my parents were learning about the Bible and, and then having it actually play out in front of me and losing half my family. And a lot of the things that my parents talked about could happen, did happen Mm -hmm. to me and just in a different way. Um, So I look back on just, and there were a lot of firsts for me too. So being a teenager who was very sheltered and sort of stuck on a mountain, homeschooled, one or two friends, didn't get to experience the world, didn't get to do things normal kids do. So there was this this thing going on where I was curious about life. Being that age and wanting to experience life, but dealing with this gigantic responsibility of the entire world, feeling like the entire world hated you for your belief system and hated your parents and you deserved what you got and wanting to prove them wrong and do really well in public school, which I was terrified of and absolutely absolutely hated and didn't fit in and it was I don't know, it was a lot. it was a lot, but, there were little gifts along the way. Like if I wanted to go get my ears pierced, you know, we, we ended up moving in with my aunt and uncle and my aunt and uncle were very, very, they're very like more on the liberal side of things where my parents are very conservative. And so I know that times they had no idea what to do with me. They were probably very frustrated with me at times, but as I was with them at times, but You know, if I wanted to go to the mall and get my ears pierced, like they would, they would take me to do something like that. And so there were these little breaks along the way of just experiencing life in between the grief and the pain and the wanting to prove everyone wrong. And so, as a teenage girl, I'd go to the mall and get my ears pierced or um, get my driver's license at 18, you know, and learn how to drive. And I was sort of thrust into a world I had been being sheltered from. And because I had walked through the worst, I wasn't scared of that world. Like I wanted to experience that world. Um, But it was very, there was a lot of just dark heaviness on me all the time. So, you know, going to a movie or, or going, you know, riding an escalator for the first time, riding an airplane for the first time, you know, all these firsts in a way, I think were somewhat therapeutic on top of, Just dealing with everything else, Um, but it wasn't easy. It was very, very hard. It was very hard. And then being in the media, being, you know, this would happen with the case, and then it would be all over the newspapers again. And yeah, it was it was rough. Um, So, did you stay separated from your dad after that,
2: or were you guys able to reconnect before he actually had to go to trial?
1: No, he um, he got put in jail. And he sat in Ada County Jail for a while. Um, We could go visit him in jail, you know. I think we visited him a couple times. Um, But we were separated from him. We first moved in with my grandparents in Iowa, and then it became too much for them. They were just, you know, too far along in their retirement to be able to deal with us. And then my aunt and uncle stepped in, and we got put in homeschool or I mean public school from being homeschooled. And, um, yeah, dad was in, he was in jail in Idaho and we were in Iowa with our extended family who we didn't really know Mm -hmm. because we were so young when we left Iowa and we knew our grandparents because our grandparents would come visit us in North Idaho once a year, if they could, Mm -hmm. which that was a blessing because then they weren't total strangers. Right. But my aunt and uncle, I wasn't, you know, super familiar with, um, But I'm very grateful for them taking us in, you know, at a really busy time in their life too, because they were raising their own two girls and they, um, my aunt worked full time and my uncle had his own recording studio business. So they had a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I just determined, you know, to prove to people, you know, one person at a time, you know, who, who my family was and not who everyone thought they were based on what the news said, or didn't say. And I made it through high school, um, and became, you know, a a young adult and I was going to do things my way and do them different and do them right and do them better and live the American dream and build my house in Montana and, you know, have all the things. And I quickly realized on top of all my trauma and then a postpartum depression after having my son on top of the regular PTSD that I had had which no one talked about that stuff back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when i had my child like no one talked about PTSD no one talked about postpartum depression i didn't know what they were mm-hmm. i didn't even have a frame of reference for it i was just like you know life is really really hard and it sucks a lot of the time mm-hmm. you know yeah. so I didn't understand triggers. I didn't understand any of that stuff that's just, you know, common knowledge now. Mm-hmm. I just had to get through it. And sometimes I did well, and sometimes not so well. There were times I didn't want to keep living. You know, there were times I I realized that sometimes it's easier to die than to pick up and carry on and keep living. But I felt that taking my own life would have been a cowardly act. I'm not saying people who do are cowardly. I don't believe that at all. That was just for me personally. Um, it, in that I didn't want to leave my son without a mother the way I had been left without a mother. Like that would be the worst thing I could possibly do. Um, so it was just not an option, but I hit rock bottom. You know, I, I had achieved a lot of things and I had achieved the things on my list, and you know I remember my my husband at the time was he got really frustrated with me, and he i I was not happy and he's like, Write down what will make you happy' I think he was at his wits end with me, and I didn't know I had nothing to write, and that scared the ever living daylights out of me because I had you know built a house and had a child, and I had all these things that the world tells you will make you happy. Mm-hmm. And you should be fine. You should be healed. You should be okay. Because look at, you know, your outside looks great. And I was really good at putting on an I'm okay to the world. Like when inside maybe I wasn't so okay. And one day I was having a really particularly hard time. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm in this spot again. And my son was like two. And he was a very rambunctious two-year-old. And I was like, what would my mom do? I mean I think when you have a child you like look to your maternal you know your your mom and you're like okay I have a baby what did you do when you 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 had a baby but I didn't have that I wasn't able to go to her and ask her is this normal like should I be feeling this way am I a terrible person because right now I don't want to be here and I'm a mom like those conversations weren't being had I had no frame of reference for that and I didn't have her to talk to and I was so used to sort of putting on this I'm okay to the world because if you're not okay, mm-hmm. you get judged. And I had been judged, and I had been canceled, and I had been through all of that. And so you get really used to just putting on this front that you're okay so that you're not judged because you can't deal with that on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. You just can't. You know, you're you're supposed to be, you know, this happy wonderful mother. You shouldn't have these these feelings, like it's too hard and, you know, it's too much. And it had nothing to do with my love for my son.
2: Mm-hmm. No.
1: Nothing. Like, adored. He's the best thing. that He's one of the biggest God gifts I've ever had in my life. And so there's a lot of guilt that goes with that, too, you know, as a new mom. Um, but one hard day, and what would my mom do? And I knew she would go to her Bible. And so I pulled out her Bible, and um, I couldn't really read it. And so I went and got my Sunday school Bible out, and that's where the story goes full circle to when my parents left Iowa. But I know we've been at this probably a really long time. Are you guys okay? Yeah. No, do you need it's something fine. To Unless you need a or break, or if
0: if if you need a break <laughs> or you need a drink or anything, please let us know. I'm gonna grab a water, but I'm I'm great.
1: I, know. I didn't know like how long of a episode you wanted. There was there's no zero rules. Time limitation. <laughs> zero rules. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I think I was sharing with you when I do an interview, it's like four and a half hours. Yeah, <laughs> I should have told you that ahead of time. No, no, no. no
2: great. Um, yeah. I, so when you wanted to turn to your mom and you couldn't, does that strum up? Did that strum up like anger or? or?
1: Depression. You know, I struggled with a lot of depression. Mm-hmm. Just, just a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, just a lot of, you know. Unresolved. Yeah. I don't think I allowed myself ever to truly grieve. Mm-hmm. I think I kicked into protection mode. I kicked into step into your mom's shoes mode. I kicked into proving the world wrong mode. Mm-hmm. You know, but get then your water.
2: Oh. <laughs> that's fine. That's <laughs> <But> fine. Then, <laughs>
0: I want to be disruptive.
2: You're then not. I know you're, you, you're opening all quiet. <laughs> but then God gives you a son, which then. It's it's kind of a full circle in a way because not only do you get your friend back, but now you can completely understand the love that your mother had. There's something about a mom's love for their son, for their little yes. boy. And yes. so it, it definitely helps. You know, you're saying, oh, he was probably my kid's favorite. It's funny because my son, who's 13 now, is always like, I'm mom's favorite. He was actually born on my birthday, but so he's like my, yeah. So like, there's always this joke and the kids are always like, and then Eli comes along, you know, but the girls are like, no, we're not mom's favorite, but there's just something about a mother and her son. So, I mean, this sounds kind of weird, but I was just thinking about what is you're telling the story? Like God has mercies in weird ways. Mm -hmm. And, and the fact that your mom joined your brother the very next day. I don't know how she would have lived without him. I don't either. And so in a weird way, even though it's so hard for everyone left behind, for her, her heart,
1: mm-hmm. no, she, I'm she got you. her son back. I think the Lord had mercy on her. Yeah. And I don't think Sam could have lived and carried on the way I have been able to he was so loyal and just so passionate and such a fierce little heart. I I think he would have really struggled. I mean, I really struggled. Yeah. Both of them were very much alike and connected. Yeah. And out of our whole family, they had the closest relationship with the Lord. And looking back on that, I'm like, you know, God knows what he's doing. We mm-hmm. don't always see it, you know, And, I yeah I don't think she could have. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, you know. But I know exactly where you're coming from with that. I've thought of myself went in my
2: mom head. Mm -hmm. I I know you, as a mom of a son, I'm sure have already thought of that. You just wouldn't want to. Mm
1: -mm. And I don't think she would have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can I ask about your dad? Yes. I know you recently lost your father. My condolences. Thank you. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Do you think that your your dad felt a sense of peace with everything that happened? mm No. No. Harbored a lot of resentment, anger, frustration.
1: It ate him alive. Really? Yeah. It destroyed him. He never came back from he never came back from it fully. Um, in fact, that was a lot of my pain was watching his pain. Mm -hmm. I felt, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, I felt his pain because I watched him suffer the loss and I understood the loss because I was suffering it, but not on the level that he had because it was his wife and his son, you know, um, for me seeing him be, so misunderstood and I had my moments with him like my relationship with him was so complicated in so many ways just just really loving him wanting to protect him being a daddy's girl um but him just having so much pain he couldn't give back to me what I needed from you know that father-daughter relationship um which was okay I'd never held that against him um And then there were times, especially after I became a Christian, that, you know, he struggled with his faith, um, genuinely, very deeply struggled and struggled for a long time. And he was angry with God, if there was a God, and then he was an atheist for a while. And then, you know, he just, he couldn't reconcile it. He just couldn't reconcile it, um... He's, he was very strong too and very hard headed, you know, and very opinionated and no filter. I think the no filter thing bothered me more <laughs> than most people. Most people were like, Oh, your dad's awesome, you know, but there's times he would rattle off and I would just be like, Oh my gosh, dad. You know, but he was he was authentic authentically himself mm-hmm. all the time. And if you liked it, great. If you didn't, oh well, you know? And that's just who he was. Mm-hmm. And there were times I was like, Dad, you know, just use a little wisdom here because it'll be much easier, you know, for you, for me, like whatever. But it just wasn't who he was. And then when I became a Christian, I think he might have had some demons that were irritated by my mm. my light or whatever. But there were times that he would just he would just go off and I'd be like, Dad, where did that even come from, you know? And it was hard because I lost my relationship with him, you know, the day Sam died, he changed, you know, he had, you know, his part of him, him, he, he died too, you know, and so the dad that I was used to left and I had felt that I lost both parents, Mm -hmm. you know, from the beginning because it really did, It, it robbed, it robbed him you know, that it just, it wasn't there anymore. I mean, I did a lot of things with him. I did book signings with him. I, you know, he leaned on me a lot in a lot of areas. I stepped in to try and help him in ways that I shouldn't have had to, but I wanted to, because, you know, I just, I really, daddy's girls, they love their dads, Mm -hmm. you know, they just, and that's what I was, but there's a lot of things I disagreed with him on and a lot of things I was so angry at him about. And he would do something, you know, I considered stupid. And I'd be like, Dad, you know, what are you doing? I'm trying to protect you from yourself. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I don't know. Da- daddy-daughter relationships can be complicated. Oh, yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're complex at times.
1: They
2: are. They definitely are. I kind of go through that now with a, mm. our own teenager. Yeah. 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 Yeah, They they can be, but... I think that's amazing that you were there and you didn't harbor any, any resentment. You just knew that you needed to be there and you didn't, you didn't require, not that you didn't want or need it, but you didn't require that be reciprocated. And I think that's a really beautiful, selfless, just unconditional love that you had for your family.
1: It was, it was very hard because he carried so much guilt over what happened, but I didn't see him. I didn't see it as being his fault. hmm you know, a lot of people wanted to throw guilt his way. And and I think he owned and carried that. And I think he blamed himself if I would have just done this. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. If of I would course. have just done that. If I wouldn't have done this or I wouldn't have done that. You know, I think he struggled with that. And he could never receive from me. So all of the love and the care and the things I was trying to do, he couldn't receive because he carried that. And so the more I poured out trying to help him, the less he could take in. And so that became, but then when he needed something, a lot of times he would come to me and be like, I need this from you, which is also very complicated because if you won't receive what I want to freely give, and then you come to me for something, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. You know? So, yeah.
2: There's trust in that too. Like he knew he could. Right. And so that's a kind of a compliment in its own way. Yeah. That he knew he could come to you no matter what.
1: Yeah. Which I probably didn't see that because he would come to me when he would get himself, you know, in a pickle or something. And I'd be like, well, what'd you do that for? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or people would come to him and they'd want to, they'd want to attach themselves to him Mm. and and do something. Mm. And I could see it was not a wise decision. And I'd be like, dad, no, this is not, he didn't have that feel. Like he couldn't, Discern properly mm-hmm. people's intentions, right. And I was really good at reading people and discerning what they were after because I had watched it from the time I was a, a little. You know, mm-hmm. okay, you welcome these people into your life, but maybe their intentions are bad, right? You know, so yeah, yeah. So he would be, you know, all in, you know, with certain people, and I he'd be like, Oh, I want you to come meet so and so, or whatever. And I could see they were using him for their own gain, and I would be like, really.
0: So in the aftermath of all this, can I also ask about that? Because there are a lot of people who will reference the Mm -hmm. Ruby Ridge incident. Um, I believe Timothy McVeigh with the Oklahoma city bombing, is that correct? And then just kind of like the modern day militia movement that, that has kind of latched on to the events that you and your family had to endure as a beacon of, I don't know how to label it, but can I just ask what your, what your thoughts or opinions are on all of that? If you have any. Oh
1: my gosh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> this has been going on for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Um so a lot of people have very very good intentions with it. Mm-hmm. And they maybe they see something in their lives that isn't right and they can draw a comparison and they're like, "Hey, you know, this is not, you know, a good thing." And then you have the ones that want to use it for their own gain. Um, somebody sent me an example of that the other day. They're actually using, you know, my dad and, you know, our the Ruby Ridge thing to sell products online and um, stuff like that. And that's been going on for years. And it, it would really frustrate me and make me angry in the past. And I would just be like, this is so wrong. And, you know, how do you stop this or whatever? And then... I just got to a point where I'm like, life is too short for me to constantly worry about what everyone else is thinking or doing or saying or using, you know? So I could spend all day long, every day, you know, searching the internet and finding people that are using it wrong and speak into that and literally ruin my own life because... A lot of times, touching, just touching this, just Ruby Ridge for me in my own life is like touching a hot skillet barehanded. Mm-hmm. It would bite me. Yeah. Like, I've run from it at times. I have buried it. I have put it away. I have not wanted to talk about it. I have, like, I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. I want to be joyful and happy and be about creative, fun things. Yeah. And then this always comes back. It just, it finds me. It finds me over and over and over again. And you mentioned Timothy McVeigh. And when that happened, I remember I was in a thrift store when I heard about the Oklahoma City bombing and they mentioned us as his motivation. And I fell apart. I fell apart in the store. I was like, this can't be. Like, you can't go bomb a bunch of people and kill little kids and use use my name for that. Mm -hmm. This is so wrong. And so that then lit a fire of, okay, I need to get out there and say that. Mm -hmm. Like I have to tell people, please do not do acts of revenge that hurt other people in my name. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I have lived through that and it is hell. Mm -hmm. It is hell on earth. I don't want that for anybody. Revenge is not worth it. Mm -hmm. It is not worth that pain. It is not worth it. And all it does is cause more pain. Mm -hmm. It's not going to fix it. It's not going to bring them back. You know, if we can have discussions and prevent something like that from happening again, if we can make decisions and, you know, better decisions, which I'm grateful that there are better decisions being made. I've been told, you know, it's been used as a training tool of what not to do in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. That's awesome but please do not you know take do acts of violence that that hurt and kill other people and use that because that's not who I am that is not the life God has given me that is not anything that I want to be a part of you know vengeance is mine says the lord you know he's the one that can handle that i i don't believe we were meant to handle stuff like that you know mm-hmm. so yeah i you know Trying to just become an adult and live my own life and raise a child and 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 not live in the heaviness of Ruby Ridge and then it just come keeps you know it just keep coming back and finding me yeah and finding me and people will find you and if if they want to use it you know and they want to use you or or whatever or they're just genuinely curious or whatever I mean it's just always found me and so it's been a wrestling for me. I would throw it away, and it would come back, and I would throw it away, and it would come back. And so I've had to reconcile it with the Lord a lot. And there's times I still pull back. Like this podcast is one of the... I haven't done a lot in the past few years. Um, one of the last documentaries I did... Documentaries are a tricky thing for me because they don't they don't let you in on the editing process. Right. And you they can promise you that you can tell your, your full story and all these things. And they'll let you tell your full story about what ends up on the cutting room floors, what ends up on the floor. Right. And usually it's the most important part to me, which is the hope part and the freedom part and mm-hmm. the, Hey, I went through hell, but Jesus did this and now I'm here. And what can we learn from it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they tell the I went through hell and then maybe a couple seconds of this. And then it's right. like, put it away. Right. And I'm like, I don't want to tell this over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's sad and it's horrible and it's horrendous, but God didn't leave me there. right? And I don't want to leave you there
2: mm-hmm.
1: because that's not fair. That's leaving you hopeless yeah. and it's leaving you sad and depressed and angry and disillusioned and all of these other things we can get when we just pick up our phone. Like, I yeah. don't want to leave us there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We literally went back and forth on like, how do we even talk to Sarah about this? How, because we wanted the story out there because I was talking to my sister actually last night and then she was like, you have any podcast guests coming? And so I was like, yeah, I have Sarah Weaver coming. And she's like, "She's like, why does that name sound familiar? And I was like, she's a survivor of Ruby Ridge. And she's like, I don't remember that story. And so I thought well, we might have so many viewers that don't remember the story or are too young mm-hmm. to have lived that. Yeah. Because yeah. it was 30 years yes. ago. So we were like, oh, I do not want to have to have Sarah retell this because she has retold, you know, like you have retold it over and over again on different documentaries. Mm-hmm. And like so much of us wanted to just be like, go watch the documentary. This is Sarah now, but people aren't going to do that. So we needed the background in order to understand the amazing just transition in your life so yeah. when when did that part start for you
1: and you don't have to apologize for any of that because it's, i know that has to, a... i know that part has to be told like and i have no problem with that like you have to understand the depth of the valley before you can understand the beauty of the mountaintop right right um and i I knew, you know, that you guys were willing to tell the whole story and not just part of the story. So I had no fear coming into that, you know, with this podcast, but, um, just that's been my experience, you know, Mm -hmm. in the past. And so, you know, going through all of the depression and and all of that stuff, and then having a rambunctious two-year-old and still struggling with that, just depression, just that deep depression. Um, and then picking up my mom's my mom's Bible and really not being able to read her Bible and not having a relationship with God at all. Um, a few months before I had this, this just really ha- this hard day. Um, my childhood friend had come to visit me. Sorry. Yeah, oh, you're absolutely. Fine. You're good.
2: Huckleberry has to go potty. <laughs> oh, gotcha.
1: Do you need to use the restroom, honey?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, you yeah. could just well, knock on the door
2: <laughs> <laughs> or, or. Are you okay like, with him music? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's how we keep the bear away. <laughs> okay, we tell the kids like pick different spots and the bear
1: won't come. <laughs> Sorry, that,
0: that was Sarah's husband walking by, just so everybody is. He was understanding.
1: pottying my, my doggy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll bring Huckleberry on camera yeah, so they yeah. can see. Yeah, that's fine, he's been seriously. he's been
2: kind of clattering around. He's so cute. I, I keep getting distracted by him.
1: He's just this little old soul that God gave me, <laughs> and he. He knows like helicopters can still bother me and he knows oh. when a helicopter comes mm-hmm. and he just comes and comforts me. And wow. he's been on so many book signings and interviews and interviews were very hard in the beginning and he would just sit in my lap. And so he's he's my he's my little service dog. Yeah. So I have a letter, a legit letter for him. And <laughs> you yeah. know all of that. But um yeah, maybe we'll introduce him because he's yeah,
0: yeah, pretty him on special. On. Seriously.
1: Yeah, he's part of the story. Um so the my my best friend from when I was a child you know, up in Idaho, mm-hmm. um, Maria, had come to visit me, and we'd stayed in contact. She was living in California. Um, we both had young children, and she came to visit me one day. And um, she, we were arguing. We weren't arguing. I was trying to argue with her on some point of religion that I had heard from my dad. I didn't even have my own opinion about it. It was something I'd heard from him. And... She had said something and I was like, oh, well, what about this? You know, just trying to be all, I didn't really have an opinion. I was just throwing something out there. And she looked me square in the eye and she said, she said, Sarah, I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And that was all she said. She just dropped it. And I was like speechless. And I just was like, because we didn't, Jesus was not a name we used in our household. My parents used Yahweh and Yeshua, and Jesus was not, he was not a part of the Old Testament, you know, religion I had been taught. So I was just like, okay, um, well, that ended that conversation next. <laughs> What's for lunch? <laughs> yeah. So and it made me kind of just shut up and I was uncomfortable with it. Well, then a couple months later and I was back to struggling and I got my little Sunday school Bible out. And when my parents were attending that church in Iowa, this is so interesting to me, I attended Sunday school, and they would give you a piece of candy if you memorized a Bible verse. And I was very competitive. Like, I wanted that candy. Plus, I love candy. That helped. Um, But when I grabbed my Bible, because I just sort of followed the rules and the laws to make my parents happy. Like, I didn't have my own religion. I didn't, like, buy into uh, the, the passion that they had. God. I was just kind of like trying to stay out of trouble and off the radar. And, you know, and I had since been mad at God, you know, if there was a God, I was mad at him. Um, But when Maria said that, I was like, oh man, she was convinced. And her opinion meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she had been my friend through thick and thin and she just loved on me and she didn't try to change me or talk me down. I was not a very good friend because I was so depressed and wallowing. And she still just, she was there, you know, so I respected her opinion. But at uh, seven years old in Iowa, in that little Sunday school, um, I memorized John three sixteen, And I think it's always worth quoting, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And... When I got my Bible out, I had no idea where to open up or where to turn, and I opened up to John 3:16, because I remembered that specific verse, that was the only one, and I went there. And when I read it, and then I read uh, John 3:17, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved." I felt the weight of the world just completely come off. Like, it was so real. I felt like I could breathe again. That Bible verse, the first one dealt with death. Death was the greatest enemy. It had been my enemy. I hated it. I hated death. It robbed me. And in John three sixteen, death was dealt with, and then the condemnation was dealt with, feeling condemned and feeling like I'm not worthy or good enough or whatever. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. And I knew in that moment that I had met him for the first time. And I I was radically saved in that moment. Wow, That moment for me was more real and more powerful than all of Ruby Ridge had been because of the freedom that I experienced in that moment. And I was hooked from that point. It was like you know whom the sun sets free is free indeed and in that moment i was so free i had so much to learn <laughs> i mean hey honey did you put it <laughs> back in the car okay. <laughs> are you doing okay okay you're good um are you guys doing good yeah, yeah okay
0: absolutely right. i think it's beautiful what you said and you serve as a a Great example of that because of your your strength, resilience. It shows you live it.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Some days are better than others, but yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Well,
2: yeah, there's no there's no perfection in in faith or life or anything right. that we have going on down here. It's just the fact that you can find any level of forgiveness or peace just speaks volumes.
1: Yeah, and okay. to me, it speaks volumes about our about our Lord. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was an intense moment that changed the course of my life for sure. And you're right about the perfection. And that's something that I've struggled, you know, with in, you know, trying to prove everyone wrong and all of these things. And oh, if if you make everything look good on the outside and you have all these things, the world tells you will make you happy. Everything's going to be great. Well, Mm -hmm. No, yes. we're all we're all messes. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. some days more mess than others. Yeah. But like you said, there is no perfection in that journey, but there's beauty in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you can find that, and I think that's powerful. Mm-hmm. So,
2: I th- I think your story is just it's a story of hope through the worst circumstance. If you can find hope and peace and love and happiness, anybody can. And that makes you such a beacon of hope for so many people. Aww. I just.
1: That means a lot. I hope people find that listening to this because it makes it worth it to do it. Yeah. You know, it makes it worth it to relive it again. And so that's my prayer when I come into these interviews is that, you know, the Lord would speak just to that person. He leaves the 99 for the one. Yeah. And even if it's just one, it's worth it because I was one. You know, and look at what he's done. Like it's 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 amazing to me. He he constantly amazes me. Yeah. Um I had a lot to learn though. I'm still learning. I still have a lot to learn. Learning all the time, but you know, I ended up walking through a divorce as a Christian. You know, I I didn't understand forgiving as much as I understood I had been forgiven in the beginning, right? And there's there's two different roads to walk there. One, there's accepting forgiveness for yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have a difficult time with that. I think it's more difficult when you're on the pain-giving side than the pain-receiving side because it's easier to receive forgiveness if you haven't been the one doing the, the thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so when I received his forgiveness and I got all of that freedom and he dealt with death, like that was one of the major, major things for me. Like death was not the end. You know, he dealt with it. He defeated it. He conquered it, you know, because that would been the enemy to me. That was, that was the thing. Um, and he dealt with that and I had received his forgiveness. Um, but then I ended up becoming, when you get, you know, radically saved and you're one way, and you're depressed all the time, and you're sad all the time, and you live a muted sort of life, and then all of a sudden Jesus steps in, and you become a new creation, everything that brings that that comes with that can make the people in your life very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. because you change so drastically. And I was desperate to change. I knew if I didn't change, I wasn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. And so I started rapidly changing, and I was hungry for learning more, you know, and then I discovered that there's a whole christian like family out there. I had no idea mm-hmm. you know, and what comes with that, and then a church family and then and then it's like, oh my gosh, and then you know there's conferences and there's there's things to learn and 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 God starts changing things in you, and the people in my life were like. Oh boy. What just happened here? And I don't blame them for that because I did change. And so you know, I ended up that ended up leading me down, you know, a path where it just separated from the person I was with and um that's a whole other long story, but what the Lord taught me in that journey as painful as it was because for me it was like another death. Mm-hmm. Like divorce can feel like Another death. And coming out of Ruby Ridge, like I had been the victim. And people, you know, they agreed with that. And they'll tell you all day long, Mm -hmm. oh, this never should have happened to you. They'll pat you on the back and say, you have every right to be angry, every right to be, you know, upset and bitter and all these things. Like, of course you do. Like, and they will put you up on that shelf and they'll help keep you there. Mm -hmm. And it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. It's not a good place to stay, but it's comfortable. Yeah you know, cause you have full support of everyone around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, going through the divorce, it, it was like going through another death. And then I was hurting people right and left, you know, cause you can't go through divorce and not hurt people. I didn't want to ever hurt people. Like I, having been so hurt myself, I never wanted to hurt anyone else, but in order for myself to survive like this, I had to go through this, mm-hmm this thing, I had to change. And if they could either, you know, come along or not, and that's kind of just how it was for me, you know, it's not like that for everybody, but that's just how it was for me. Mm-hmm. And it was a knot. And so, I mean, I give them cre- credit that there was, there was a try there, but it just, it just didn't work out. And so I learned through that divorce and still clinging onto Old Testament, Religion, I thought if I I never wanted to go through divorce, I never wanted a divorce. I was like, I, I was one of those people, I'm never getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. I look down on people that got divorces, like, and here I'm you know walking through it, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, so <laughs> don't, so like, never say never because as soon as you say never, <laughs> it's almost like you get humbled mm-hmm. for that never. And so, I've that's a big lesson I've learned, <laughs> but um, I learned that I became a perpetrator, and so having been the victim all these years of pain being perpetrated on me, I became a perpetrator and I ended up hurting people through this my divorce. And I, I still was terrified God was just going to kick me out. Like he wouldn't want anything to do with me getting a divorce, you know? And he really surprised me in that he was so tender. He held my hand through it. He walked me through it. He didn't condemn me. I did more condemning. I'm, there's no one harder on me than me. (laughs) I did more condemning of myself. And I, I mean, I know God hates divorce and I never would, you know, encourage that as a Christian, you know, as a way out or anything like that. Um, but There's not the condemnation in it either. He hates divorce, but he doesn't hate people who get divorced. And I think we need to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. He loves his children. He's going to help you through your mess, right? If you're a Christian and you get divorced, God's still there for you. You Mm -hmm. just have to give him that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And let him heal you. So that's coming out of it. And that's where he taught me the importance of forgiveness and forgiving the perpetrator because I had received forgiveness, but I had not forgiven those who had perpetrated the pain against me. And when I got that, and I finally understood being a victim, yeah, I had experienced intense, terrible pain perpetrated on me by other people. Mm -hmm. And when you're the victim, you have someone to blame,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? You have somewhere to place that. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff can go over here on someone else. But when you are the one causing pain, you have no one to blame but yourself. If you're honest, if you're truly honest, you can still blame other people for why you did what you did. But at the end of the day, really, because you're making the choice. (laughs) So, you know, if you're honest, you have no one to blame but yourself. And when the Lord showed me that carrying that is worse than carrying the pain of being the victim, then I was like, whoa, I have to forgive not to mention all the Bible verses that say forgive to be forgiven.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, they're in Matthew and Mark, and I encourage you to look them up if you're struggling with forgiveness. Any of your listeners, look up Bible verses on forgiveness because it's very clear in there, you know, we are to forgive. And that was a whole new level of freedom for me. And what I learned is that forgiveness is not a feeling. At the end of the day, it's a choice. Mm. You choose to make it as often as you need to, as many times as it takes. Pretty soon, it's not even an issue in your life anymore if you just keep turning it over. And the feelings can come back and you can be angry and not want to let it go and all of that stuff. But if you make the choice to... All of that's keeping you in bondage mm-hmm. to what the other person did to you anyway. It's not saying that what they did is okay. It's not condoning whatever it was that happened. It's not giving them a free pass, but it it will set you free from what has been perpetrated on you. And I do think something happens in the spiritual realm too for them. Like, I don't know for sure, but I feel like once you release that and you... You let that go and you give it to God and you say, okay, I am choosing not to hold this grudge mm-hmm. against this person. Then I think not only can he work on you, but I think he also can work on them, you know? And, you know, I want to be really clear too. It's not about removing your boundaries in any shape or form. You know, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, should I go tell the person I forgave them? And I'm like, not necessarily. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I Not, think that's an important distinction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not unless the Lord is leading you to, or He, you know, He sets up a way that you guys are talking, because there's a lot of people that you might choose to forgive that still think they never did anything wrong, you right. know, and then you're in a pickle. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So use, you know, wisdom and discernment in that. But for me, it's just a personal choice between me and God that I make over and over and over again until it no longer has any hold on me. Mm-hmm. And so can reconciliation come after that? I think it can. Does it have to? Not necessarily. Yeah. You know?
2: But it gives you freedom. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's amazing. Yeah. It kind of goes back to if you can find hope, anyone can. If you can find forgiveness, anybody can. Yeah. Because I, like you said, no one's been through what you went through.
1: And I think it's the Father's heart. And I think yeah. when we go after His heart, He helps us. He empowers us to do the hard thing mm-hmm. the right way. And that's available to everyone. I'm not special in that. I just was so desperate. I needed His heart. Like I had to go after His heart because that was my lifeline. And it's available to everyone. And that's just so amazing. Yeah. Oh,
2: it is. So, is that what is that what inspired you to then want to tell your own story? So, was the book written after your your personal faith journey?
1: Yes, this this book, um, the Ruby Ridge to Freedom, the Sarah Weaver story. That after the Lord walked me through, you know, this radical, just radical change and teaching me about forgiveness and changing my life and helping me, you know, find that hope again. And, and the depression went away and I, I knew I had to tell that story because the old story didn't represent me anymore, not fully. Mm-hmm. And I just, I felt like the Lord's story, it's his story really. And I've seen him do just such amazing things with it. You know, it's not even mine to keep to myself even though it's hard and I don't want to tell it sometimes and I don't want to put myself out there, it's, it's not even my story anymore in a lot of ways. It's for someone else. And he can do that with anyone's pain. He can do that with anyone's story. Mm-hmm. You just have to be brave enough to surrender it to him and say, here's my loaves and fishes, and they look really humble and they look really sad, and it's all I got but it's what I got and you take it and you bless it and you multiply it and you do something with it. It's all I got and it ain't much and I can't do it on my own, but you take it. And then he feeds the 5,000. Yeah. And we just have to be brave enough to do that. And there's been times I haven't felt brave enough to do that, but I would just step out in faith and do it anyway. And he always met me there. And so I would just encourage anyone listening, you know, if you're getting that nudge and you're walking with him, you're gonna be okay. He's got you. Yeah. Just be brave and take the step. You know, not if someone else is pushing you or pressuring you or it's society or whatever, but if it's you've got this thing, just you and the Lord, and he's like, I think you should, you know, just step out and do that. Yeah. Personal relationship with him is just so key for my walk. It's just hearing from him and that you want me to to do this. So I can do stuff in my own strength and it doesn't turn out. (laughs) Yeah. It just doesn't. So,
2: I think think it's kind of amazing that you're sitting here with us right now. I thought that you would just ignore us when we reached out. It was actually Jeremy's idea to speak to you and now I understand why that all of a sudden you popped into our heads because I don't think it was an idea that popped into our heads on our own knowledge. I think it was talk to Sarah. Wow. And so I think that's really incredible and I just realized that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Like what a neat, I have, I feel honored to be a vessel. (laughs) So I I just think that it's so strange. Like even when my sister was like, oh, how'd you guys come up with talking to Sarah? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And I didn't really think about it until you just said that, now. And it's like, this makes sense now, now now I understand.
1: It does. It does make sense. Yeah. And I shared with you earlier, I had, um, uh, so I have a bunch of friends in this area on my social media and I had seen where you had done um, a grocery giveaway. And that's all I really knew about you guys. I saw that one video and I was like, that is just so cool. Like, these are cool people. Like that was my first opinion of you. Oh, and then um, that, so I, I have some really Close friends, and they have a YouTube channel called Unknown Chicken Bones. I'm gonna yeah. give them a shout out. You can, yeah, if you can keep it in there. We were on there. Unknown yeah. Chicken we Bones. We were on their
0: channel briefly. We yeah. were,
1: yeah. yeah. Unknown Chicken Bones. They yeah. told us about you like a few months ago. It was July, it was a month ago. Yeah, July 4th. Yeah, I we think, met them on yeah. the 4th of July. Yeah, and they came back from that, and they were telling us all about you, and they're like, oh, they have a YouTube channel, and they have all these followers, and, you know, they." and so you were on my radar those two times. Oh, funny. And so when you contacted me, and there's just so many other things that are, are a connection for me. A, where you live is mm-hmm, where nice. we care took a ranch. I had never... um shown this area to my husband. I actually haven't, haven't been in this area since I was a kid. And so I really was wanted to come back to this area and be able to show him. And then, you know, just, you know, our friends bringing you up and then the, the, the giveaway that you did, because when I would, when we would travel, my husband and I, and we would do book signings, we never wanted to charge anyone for the presentation. It was always, you know, the gospel is free but we would do food bank fundraisers. And so we preferred that the churches would say, bring a can of food um, to come and hear the presentation. And then, you know, we'll donate all of it to the food bank at the end of, you know, the, our presentation. And so that was just a little, when you guys were doing that, I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Cause that's kind of what our heart was as well. And so it just, it, it just the Lord, you know, just tapping me on the shoulder. And so, I probably would have. I probably wouldn't have done this. I've had offers for podcasts in the past that I have turned down, like yeah. multiple. We were
2: surprised you said yes. <laughs> like I'm like, I think she's gonna come, and he's like, "What, really?" Like, we no, I said it before.
0: It. We're so grateful to you for agreeing to do this and telling yeah. your story once again. And it's kind of weird. She said that I had the idea, and I, I literally was by myself in our master bedroom, thinking to myself who do I want to talk to who would be a great podcast guest and for whatever reason you popped into my mind I literally had you were not in the forefront of my mind I didn't watch anything on you you popped into my brain and I guess God just works in very mysterious ways with with everything it is that you are now saying from from your end of things it's it's amazing how everything came together but again so 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 grateful to you for agreeing to do this yeah
1: well, I'm grateful to you guys, and that. Thank you for that for that testimony. Yeah, it's amazing. You I gave will, me chills telling me about the whole thing. I know. <laughs> that is I got it. So well, I, yeah. So you weren't like creeping my social media. No, right? I, <laughs> no, it was so it's, random. And, it
0: might sound weird in retrospect, but like literally, didn't look into you at all. Hadn't watched anything with you for multiple, multiple years. Yeah.
2: We did most of our research after you agreed to come. I was like, shoot, we need to like really understand Sarah before she comes um i had only ever seen the 700 club interview i think i was just when my kids were little little went back when we lived back in washington yeah wow and so it was very random that he was just like how about sarah weaver yeah i walked out
0: of uh-huh. the bedroom and i told you i said yeah yeah well i'm try like this?
2: how do we find her I was yeah like, i don't know and that's, that's amazing so
1: neat yeah. God is so cool I yeah. love <laughs> the way he does that
2: yeah i think it just needed to be told and so you have this beautiful book. You brought us a copy. Thank you so much because I was just about to purchase it on Amazon and add it to our homeschool reading. And so this is perfect. How can other people find this book? And we can include a link also in the description.
1: I am so glad you asked that because I usually forget to even you know do do the pl- the plug. I'm so terrible at the business side of my life. Like you guys are my. I, I look at what you do and I'm like, man, they are so cool. They have it all together. <laughs> I don't have a YouTube no, channel. We don't. <laughs> um so the book actually in this area if you have people following you in this area Mm -hmm. they can grab a copy at the mountain traders in elmira
0: okay yeah
1: um they carry it
2: familiar
1: Um, bonner books they have ordered from me in the past so they may have some okay um otherwise you can go to my website which is ruby ridge to freedom and it's t-o so it's all spelled out ruby ridge to freedom dot com
2: Okay, and yeah, we're gonna have a link down below so people can just click it and go right there. I think your story deserves to be told. I think it can help so many people dealing with anything.
1: That's that's thank you, thank you for that. I well, mean, thank you. Yeah,
2: we really appreciate you coming, and I know it's a it's a travel to here and with your your little fur babies and everything. So yeah, we just appreciate you guys so much. Yes. Yeah.
1: And and it's, the feeling is mutual. I, I do want to ask my husband real quick. Is there anything I left out that is on your heart? Well, it's all good. You're good? I'm, just, I'm laughing over here.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, was, I just it's, wanted it's to just double check. the way check. works. Things, but we just
1: have to be open and available.
0: Yeah. yeah. We have to be open and available and being plugged in. Okay.
1: Being plugged in. Holy yeah. Spirit leads us and guides us. We just got to be plugged in.
0: Awesome. Amen. Well said, Mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, thank you to both of you. Seriously, yeah. thanks for coming out here. Thanks for chatting with us, and uh, thanks for telling your story again. It's like kind of like Melissa said. It's also so important. So glad. Hopefully, there's a lot of new folks that are that are happening upon this and learning about it, and uh, they delve further into it. Pick up your book, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe find a little God in the process.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we're all dealing with our own ruby ridges at some point, you know. So. Yeah,
0: John 3.16. There you go. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate anything else from you. No. no. All right. Thank you, guys.
1: God bless you, guys. (laughs) Thank you.